Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to do a, um, we have a question, and we're going to answer the question and do some plotting and work through a ripple management to help answer this question um, for people uh, who are plotting or who don't like to plot um, or who don't plot at all for whatever reason that they have. Um, and just when you get in the middle of your story and things fall apart, what do you do? That's what we're going to talk about. Julie's going to read the question. So our question is, um, it's about how to plan and grow a story and stalling out in the middle. Uh, for example, the fix it, they want a character to ev- fix a certain event and they have a starting idea and the potential way the character would change to fix the canon circumstance. Um, and this is, I saw it in the middle where I can't decide the best approach to reach the desired outcome and being a pantser, I also keep on adding new ideas into the story and the story grows out of proportion with the ripples becoming unmanageable how do you grow your story without stalling out and contain the ideas without spiraling out so the podcast the chat people who are here for the live podcast are going to be helping us with this we're going to come up with the premise and we're going to be letting people give suggestions um, in one of two channels um and we're going to analyze those suggestions and how they fit in with the basic plot premise we're going to put together and some suggestions the interesting thing was is i don't think we're going to define a length for the story up front because sometimes a suggestion um you have like a basic idea of what you want to accomplish and i'm i'm going to this is a little bit to accommodate the panther approach um because sometimes you have an idea of what you want to accomplish and sometimes an idea would derail a short story but it wouldn't derail a novel because it becomes like a subplot that is useful for pacing in a novel, but it would be a complete disaster in something under 15K. So um, we'll kind of analyze those and maybe we'll make some decisions about length and where we're going as we go along and say, well, this is what you're going to do. So that's kind of how the podcast people in the podcast are going to be helping us out as giving suggestions about what could be accomplished. Um, and we're going to dissect them and talk about the potential ripples. So with that in mind, um, we're going to, I did talk to the person who asked the question ahead of time to try to find out kind of more specifically what like kind of ideas they were kind of working on to kind of get, if we're going to do a parallel, it might as well be a useful parallel. Um, and the most useful parallel I could come up with was um, they have a, a basically sort of, I want to say something kind of like high school-esque that they're working on, where a character is better prepared for their circumstances and it affects the outcome better. Um, and then they had three potential uh, paths um, for that character in one of their ideas for that character to follow. One is like a memory regression or a soul time travel. Another was a parental figure uh interrupts helps this person better prepare for their future and another would be like an oc introduced in um that is sort of a version of the second path that uh, kind of functions as a mentor role to help them better prepare so uh of the fandoms that are on the table that all of us are familiar with i think harry potter is the best fit because mm-hmm. it has a natural vibe towards middle high school type ages and it certainly works with the um either time travel or parental figure or mentor so that's what we're going to go with we're going to go with harry potter um and um time travel is always a possibility we like a good harry potter time travel um but for the purposes of 
like this and this comparison of like a Harry Potter better prepared to handle his life at Hogwarts and to function in the wizarding world kind of thing, which is sort of the better comparison in this situation. Um, I don't think I think time travel a memory regression is overkill. Also, I also think that it's a different animal because when you time travel, you have a set set of circumstances that you're dealing with already. Because you have all that canon sitting in front of you. But if you bring your character to the very beginning and they don't know what's coming and they don't, you can veer off completely and not have to worry about canon events. Right. Because you, you figure out your ripples and go, well, that just didn't happen. And your character is completely unaware of them. Um, also, in terms of preparing K Harry for life at Hogwarts and being a more assertive student and a better student i think a memory regression of future events is it also because one of the things it does in this parallel that could be potentially an issue is um which i don't want to get into this other person's story idea because we're not that's not what this is we're not trying to reveal their story idea but one of the things that could hurt in this circumstance is, is it then a memory regression kind of thing it takes harry would take harry for, away from being a true peer of anybody he's at school He's always going to be a little bit outside because he's got years more maturity. He's got these circumstances. And that's one of the issues with time travel is the disparity it creates. So if you don't want your character to have that disparity between them and um, and, and the people that they're interacting with, it's important to, to not put that. Time travel can be a really great fix-it device but it comes with a set of circumstances that can be difficult to manage if that's not what you want to do if you just want if you want your character to just be better prepared for their circumstances time travel might be suboptimal it might create more problems than it solves with the disparity between the characters with the um um, the maturity, especially when you're dealing with, a, with teenagers uh, and preteens, the disparity in maturity can be an issue. Um, your character being bored with school. It's just it's like a lot of little ripples to deal with. So, Personally, I would lose my fucking mind if I was put back in my 15-year-old body. Right? I mean, and the thing is, if Carrie has a specific The lack task, of autonomy alone. Right? Um, now, if Harry was trying to accomplish a specific task, like he had to kill Voldemort before sixth year you might do that but that's not the kind of thing we're plotting here so i would probably um <coughs> avoid the time travel in this circumstance i don't think it's the optimal but the advantage of it of course is your character is completely aware of exactly what they're trying to change and exactly what they're trying to prepare for so it seems like a good idea on the surface because you don't have to try to manage how to get your characters to that point but i think it's got more drawbacks than it's got benefits mostly because of the disparity it creates between your character and their peers and the burden it puts on them um, with that future knowledge. Um, so I think I, I, that's, not the, that's not the path I would go. So I like the idea of either the parental figure or um, the OC. Um, in Harry Potter, I think we're going to have to do an OC. We don't have a parental figure at hand. <laughs> so... Well Right, we don't have a parental figure. We have a godfather, we have a werewolf, we have um, the Longbottoms. Um, honestly, I think sometimes even a different sorting would have done Harry a world of good. And I see why people you know, kind of go that route when they're um, plotting stories, ideas. Uh, I mean, I've done I've done the serious Black thing a couple of times. You've done it with Slytherin Black. Uh, 
Although that story is more focused on um, Sirius than it is Harry. Um, and Harry's circumstances will never come to be. Right. Um, because of what happens. So it's not really preparing Harry to better. I um, have a Ravenclaw Harry story. He meets Hermione so, on the train first. So So even kind of if you're thing. even if you're a pantser, one of the things when we did the novella building the novella the novella workshop, one of the things we talked about is even if you're a pantser, one of the things that you can do is understand the point of your story, which is like figure out what your thematic element is, know where you're trying to go. And I don't think you can what the person with what the this ask is in this question if you can't figure out where your story is trying to go now the person who asked the question said they do know where their story is trying to go so that's not an issue for them it's like how do they get there so if you're going to approach anything like this as a pantser even and i know that some pantsers don't function like this um but honestly it's one of the i think for the pantsers i know who are the most successful at pantsing is very quickly into their story process like they can they, they may sit down and bang out a chapter or two without really knowing where they're going but if they want to get to the end at some point they have to stop and figure out what is the point of this story what am i trying to accomplish because if you don't you will just ramble until you, or you'll hit an awkward wall and call at the end so um but many pantsers, even if they don't know the path, how they're going to get from point A to point B, they still figure out, well, Z, I guess, they still figure out beginning and end. And then they try to figure out, and then they pants how they're going to get there. I know that makes plotters uncomfortable. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with understanding your climax, how you're, what the main goal of your story is, and then where your starting point is. So let's figure out those two things now. What kind of story do we want to tell? And where do we want to start it? <clears throat> So if we want to start Harry out in a better position at Hogwarts, then he needs to meet somebody before he gets his letter. Maybe even upwards of a year before he gets his letter. Yeah. Like, what if on his 10th birthday, something happens? <clears throat> a year's enough time to get him set to rights, especially if magic's involved. If we go with the idea that he gets help because the dog bit him, that's going to involve child protective services. Um, you wouldn't be able to direct. Realistically, he becomes part of that system. And it would seem contrived if he just fell into the hands of, say, a muggle-born or something like that. And he ended up being fostered in a family full of magicals. That would seem really contrived. Um, it's doable. I like the idea of something with family magic coming coming at him. Something unexpected. What we do know is that in 1990, when Harry Potter turns 10 years old, that Arcturus Black is still alive. He dies sometime in the beginning of 1991 in canon. Yeah. Well, sometime in 91. Um... Well, what you don't want to do is get Dumbledore's attention. So you don't want to involve the Ministry. Because that is, once you start bringing in, like, magical people, like, who are involved in the government, in in the ministry, there's no way, realistically, it doesn't get back to Dumbledore. Unless it's something like somebody from the Department of Mysteries. And that department is locked down in such a way that the chief warlock doesn't have access. And that Fudge isn't going to be able to go running to him. Oh my god, did you hear what happened to the boy who lived? Because these are realistic consequences of involving the DMLE or Obliviators or um, 
the accidental magic squad, whatever they're called. Whenever you're thinking about these new people in the government, that's going to get back to Dumbledore. I have a vague idea that okay. I sort of, it's sort of, a, it's sort of an extension of something that, um, something that, I mean, you, you have to work on like wizarding law stuff, but, um, which, which you can, I mean, one of the things you can do is I, is you can, because we know so little about Harry Potter world building, the Harry Potter world is you can construct the Harry, the, the magical world legal system to kind of suit your need as long as it doesn't, you know, as long as it doesn't make no sense at all. Um, or you insert something in the magical law that would ripple out in a really horrific way. You have to be really right. careful. Like you just suddenly made all Muggle-born <laughs> slaves and inadvertently that would be bad. Um, which I've seen people do. It's like, do you realize you just made all Muggle-born slaves? Oh, that wasn't my intent. Okay. Well, ba walk, okay. That back. walk that back. <laughs> walk that back. Walk that back. In fact, walk that back, then take two more steps back and take a really good look at what you were thinking. Because, whoa. What if, what if it is Arcturus Black, but Arcturus knows and he understands the political issues at play with Dumbledore. What if he figures out that Harry's in a bad circumstance, but he understands because like, I think a lot of times, like it is my headcanon, I don't believe that every teacher that Harry's ever had has been negligent to the point that they re failed to report on Harry's ratty clothing, skinny body. I just don't believe that. So I think there have been teachers over the years who have tried to get him help, and they've probably been obliviated for their efforts. Because I yeah. just don't believe that he's had callous, unhelpful, unthinking, uncaring The whole damn time. Every single year. It just doesn't make sense to me. So um, what if Arcturus understands that he can't invent himself, but what if Harry has a certain specific ability that Harry doesn't know about to get ability for, get, get help for himself? And what if any magical person has, can ask for legal, legal representation of their own, including children? And so what if Arcturus finds Harry sitting in the park one day and Harry's like sitting on a bench, kicking his little legs, and he doesn't want to go back home? And Arcturus talks to him, and Harry's like, oh, yeah, I would love a different, like, living situation. And Arcturus goes, oh, well, you know, for you to have a different living situation, you're going to have to get yourself a solicitor. And Harry goes, well, where do I get one of those? And Arcturus gives him a card and says, I think this solicitor would work well for you. And it's Tyr Warhide's card. Yes. <laughs> and because the Diverger are not in any way associated with the government of Magical Britain, they can help Harry once Harry hires them without having to report anything to anyone and Dumbledore can't interfere or even be apprised of it. That's a good way to hide him because you want to hide him. Either hide him in the bank or hide him in the Department of Mysteries. Can you imagine a Harry Potter raised by the unspeakables? <laughs> <laughs> he goes to school with a mirror, calls it the first night. Dad, there's a hellhound on the third floor. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Dumbledore said we shouldn't go look, so of course I went and looked because it's my job as an unspeakable. Harry, you're not unspeakable. <laughs> Dad, I we already be. agreed. <laughs> I'm the only one here. I'm acting on your behalf. <laughs> I'm an unspeakable. <laughs> and then there could be some enabler in the probably. Yeah, yeah, McGregor, he's an unspeakable. <laughs> they could call him Little Croker. <laughs> <laughs> Little Crow. Because the reason I call uh, the reason I picked um, Croker is because um, it's my headcanon that Jonah's uh, animated form is a is a crow and they croak. Um, a frog. 
<laughs> I just, you just went completely off the rails. <coughs> but, um, yeah. So, you know, that would be really funny. But Tyr Warhide's really interesting because he's a badass and he's highly educated. Um, he has credentials with the ICW. He is, um, he takes no shit. He wouldn't even give Ragnarok a pass. Now, he has a lot of respect for the chieftain, but if the chieftain did something that he didn't like or that was illegal, he would call him to task. Yeah. Say, hey, you know and what? You just, you just really royally fucked up, and now we have to fix this. And I think in your um, bio, at least in one story, um, Tyr is licensed to practice in both the muggle and magical world. Yes, he is. So, and it could be that, our, like, if you use Arcturus as the path to get Harry's information... Um, or it could really be anybody, but I think Arcturus is an interesting vehicle to get Harry to a solicitor because there could be like this loophole that like Harry can have his own solicitor, that any magical child is entitled to be represented by a solicitor if they, and maybe it's common for like um, every child in like a noble family or whatever to have their own specific legal representation. Um, you can certainly write it as common. Once they're of a certain age, right? Um, and then, like, Tyr maybe doesn't get, so this kid comes into Tyr's office, and he's got this little card, and he's like, um, I want to change my unfortunate living circumstances, and I was told I needed a solicitor to achieve it. Tyr's like, (laughs) and I was giving your card, so he's instantly, like, on alert, like, somebody magical is giving his card, he's like, who are you, what's your name, kid? He's like, Harry Potter, he's like, aha, how unfortunate is your living circumstances? (laughs) (coughs) Well, to start off, I live under a cupboard. I live under the stairs in a cupboard. Enough said. <laughs> because yeah, really? Like, really? Like, that's very, very unfortunate. I would agree with you. Um, we live in a cave underground, some of us, but, um, you know, they're spacious we have, caves. <laughs> we have nice stuff and we have more than a cot and a blanket. Um, so, as that kind of as your, if, if that's kind of the launch, the kind of the setup. And the question is like, what are you trying to accomplish? So if Harry's better prepared, is is now the person who gave who I talked to their story idea about had certainly had more specific um, goal. But what in what in Harry's Hogwarts life would we want to? Now the thing is, he's going to be different from the jump, so it has to be a very well. So you have to ask yourself: Is how does Tyr change his circumstances? What does he do? Does he? Go to the chieftain and say, hey, did you know that the savior of the wizarding world is living under a, um, a set of stairs in a cupboard? Especially, which could be a big deal, especially if the the diverger also have prophecies about him. And this is where it's important to know where you want to go. Because right now we could rat hole in many different directions. There could be corruption with the Harry Potter account manager who could be feeding information to Dumbledore, could be working for Dumbledore or not. Because in a longer story, that could be a useful detail. In a shorter story, that's a rat hole. Um, How deeply you want to go into the whole, do the Diverger have prophecies about um, Harry as well? Are they invested in his survival? Have they been lied to about Harry's? Um, what is the status of Harry's accounts with them? Have they been trying to get in touch with him? That all could be a big distraction if you're trying to write a novella. Well, let's work on the assumption that you were at least writing 50K. Okay, so you're at least writing a novel. Um, these are, This is where you decide, is he going to Hogwarts? Is Dumbledore a foolish old man or a problem? Because if he's a problem, and the Diverger know this, the Diverger aren't going to send him to Hogwarts. 
I think he's a problem. Because it would be like, you know what, Harry? You're going to get a couple of letters, and we're going to help you make a decision on what kind of school you want to go to. And none of those letters that they give him would be for Hogwarts. Yeah. I've always liked the idea of Harry not going to Hogwarts. I know it's like, it's anathema to a lot of Harry Potter fans. But... I would probably put him at the International Academy of Magic. And to give him the, the kind of foundation that I'd want him to have is that I would have Tyr look at the will of, Harry, of Harry's parents and pick out a family for him to be fostered with in secret. Now, here's where you decide whether or not you want to create a situation where um, eventually Amelia Bones gets really curious as to why Sirius Black is in jail. Because you could place him with Amelia Bones in secret. Or, if you want to save Neville, which I often do, Tyr goes to see Augusta Longbottom because she's on the list with her son and daughter-in-law. And he realizes that there's something really wrong in that household. And he fixes it. Whatever it is that has to be fixed. Whether it's because Dumbledore has messed with Augusta's memory. Or there's a binding on Neville. Or the uncle's trying to kill him because he wants the title. Ever how you want to go if you want to do a noble AU. Um, so, you've, so you have Tyr, Warhide, slap his ass down at Long, Longbottom Manor and solve that shit. And then Harry Potter spends the next year with Neville. And then him and Neville go to the International Academy of Magic to be badasses together. I like that. And that could be the bulk of your story is that year. And you could have Tyr Warhide. This could actually be the funny, the running joke in the story. The moment of levity when you need it on occasion is Tyr could be like raising, like very quietly, like under the surface, raising parts of the wizarding world to the ground. People are like, what the hell just happened? Who are you? I'm Harry Potter's solicitor. <laughs> It's like that man in black thing in that Make-A-Witch story. Yeah. Yeah. There's some publisher in uh, Magical Britain shaking under his desk saying, I don't know what happened. Well, you know what happened, motherfucker? You printed a whole bunch of books about a child and made money on his name and face. That's what happened. You exploited a child and we don't like that shit. Here's my card. No, okay, he's not a man so, on vacation. He's a man on retainer. <laughs> exactly. So here's what we get into talking about some of the suggestions from the podcast and how okay. some of these suggestions, I think, could derail this idea. Okay. Um, I love the idea of Save Draco too, but I think a derailer. Because I don't know. I could see how you could want to like include all the things, save all the people that you like. But I don't know how you could do that in in a way that doesn't massively take you off on a huge tangent. Because how do you, it's easy to pick a path towards the Longbottoms. Well, if Arcturus Black is the one to give Harry the card. Oh, that's true. Okay, I see where you're going. He could also be the one who, call, who talks to Narcissa and says, Did you know that the boy who lived is going to the International Academy? I can't believe you're not sending your son to the International Academy. What a shame. Hmm, a little manipulation. Okay. That doesn't derail. And it can be like off scene. And so when Harry meets yeah. Draco at school, um, he'll be like, yeah, my mom decided that I should go to the International Academy of Magic because it's better. My great grandpa said that I should come here because Hogwarts is a shithole. Narcissa and Cannon, Narcissa never wanted him um, at Hogwarts anyway. She wanted him to go to Bobatons, Boba right? 
or dumbstring, 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 whatever. Dumbstring. Uh, um, yeah, she didn't want him in Hogwarts anyway, and then she could play on um, Lucius's vanity. Now, as to whether or not that's a derailment depends upon whether or not you're getting into his years at the International Academy. Now, it could be that's just a thing you just, it all happens off screen, and it's like one of the last things. It's like its like your denouement, right? Um, Harry and Neville arrive for their first year at the International Academy of Magic, and they meet Draco Malfoy, and they're like, oh, hi, it's good to meet somebody else from our year. Again, yeah, the end. And the audience then realizes that this has rippled out. And Arcturus has changed the path for Draco as well. He didn't just confine his meddling to be Harry. And, um, but that could all happen off screen, as you said. But if you go, it all depends upon where, what, what, what the bulk of the story is, right? Right. Is the story about him getting to a new school? Um, because really, 50K is about what you would need from the moment Arcturus Black sits down on that bench to Harry Potter going to this new school and wherever you put the new school. Um, I think it'd be lovely. I, I usually put it in Italy for reasons. But I, I honestly, I pick Italy because I would love to go to Italy. It's like one of my dreams. Um, but Switzerland would be beautiful. A mountain high in the in the mountains, hidden away above the snow line year round, kind of like Hogwarts, but magical and perfect and safe and beautiful. Yeah, you could also put it um, in Japan. Yeah, um, and Hiro Ito could be the um, headmaster. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to him. He hates kids. <laughs> he hates, but he he could because of his proximity. He could. Um, come in and tutor anyone who speak any parcel mouths who come who are ready to who want to embrace parcel magic. Um, and like probably after to... a certain age, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, he'd have to if he wanted to keep his conclave um, populated. Yeah. So, and that could be where he sources um, he meets and mentors the promising parcel mouths is at the International Academy of Magic. Um, and maybe that's where known parcel mouths go because maybe there's not as many. There aren't maybe. Maybe only Durmstrang of the European schools are tolerant of parcel mouths. I mean, what you could do is have like branches, like there's the Italy branch, the branch in Japan, and the branch like in Switzerland. Maybe there's a branch in Canada. Um, don't put one in the United States because awful. Um, and I'm from the United States. For anybody listening to this podcast, don't, don't, don't come for me. We had a really difficult fucking day today. Anyways. Um, <clears throat> Across the goddamn board, and it's just, anyways. Um, so, like, Canada... if, you don't, if you don't, if you don't know what she's talking about, you do not want to read the news. Just wait a couple days, and and then check it out. Give yourself time to psych yourself up. I like the Andes too. Like, um, somewhere in Canada, somewhere in Japan, somewhere in South America, and the Andes would be beautiful. Um, and just in Italy, just have these international branches. And what would be really cool is not only do they have these branches, but the kids can move between them. Oh yeah. Like, oh. oh, well, I won't be here today. I'm going to Japan for a, a a parcel magic lesson, but I'll be back tomorrow afternoon if you want to go um, to have lunch or whatever. <laughs> That'd be really cool if they were, like, all connected. And, like, you know, he could go to Japan for parcel magic and then go to Canada to study ritual magic. Or just, you know, like, like their classes are kind of interchangeable depending on how old the student is and what they're studying. And this is all things you have to know, but this is where I would encourage you pantsers to stop and check yourself and ask yourself what story you're telling. Because are you telling a a 
Hogwarts era story, but at the International Academy of Magic. What kind of story are you telling? It's really important to know that because all this information could be useful to you, but it may not be in furtherance of getting you to the end. So, right, and isn't it something you'd want to like dig deep and like it, drop into your narrative like a bomb because it's going to be distracting. Um, it's going to cause questions from your readers that you don't want to answer. Um, so it just depends on, like, if I was going to write a 50K story, it would start with Arcturus on the bench, and it would end with Harry and Neville meeting Draco Malfoy at the school. Because that's about yeah. 50K. Mm -hmm. It feels contained. Um, you would see enough of Harry's life with um, the Longbottoms to see how he's going to change and how it's shaping him and how... Um, I would do a three part. I would do, I would, I would do a three act structure. Um, the beginning, like the the inciting event, and then act two would be the consequences of that event. Event, and then act three would be the movement forward and the ending with um, the meeting of Draco Malfoy, where you see that Arcturus's changes have been um, sweeping, and it's not just about Harry and Neville that he's impacted Draco as well. His motivations are up to you to decide. Either he's a time traveler, um, either he looked into his planetier and saw something awful that 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 that, that he couldn't stand. Um, maybe Sirius dies in prison, and it wakes something up in Arcturus that he wasn't prepared for. He sees the mistakes that he made. Maybe Sirius comes to him in a prophetic dream. I know it's awful to kill Sirius Black in prison, but what if what, what if you did? And he comes to Arcturus, and you could either do this in an epilogue or a prologue, um, and tells him to save his baby, begs him to, so he does, and he saves Narcissus and Franks too while he's at it. And maybe the reader finds this out at the very end in an epilogue where Sirius comes to Arcturus um, as a ghost, and Arcturus tells him what he's done, and he said. Is that okay? And Sirius is like, yeah, thank you. I can go now. And I kind of made myself cry a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. But, you know, that's, but, it's, but it's also uplifting because he used, um, he used what leverage he had to make a better life for Harry. Which is the goal, right? Yeah. So, if that, if, so, if you know your beginning and you know your end, what you do in between the beginning and the end is often the problem people have what ideas come up that take me from a to z that help me get to z and what is taking me away and that's the hard that's that's the crux of this question is what is a derailment and where am i getting stalled out in the middle because a lot of things can seem like a good idea and they're just a distraction okay so there are a lot of things you could get rat hold on. So let's look at some of the things you could get rat hold on. Um, so the beginning, I think the beginning is the most tactical and often it's, I think the easiest to execute because it's, you know, get Harry to the long bottoms and you know, the steps you have to um, get through, right? You got to get Arcturus has got to get him to tier. Tier has to take him on as a client. He has to get him into the bank. He has to get the will read. And you could, I would probably make it that Harry can request the will be read. Um, and if you do the idea that Sirius is dead, part of what Arcturus could be doing and part of his motivation could be trying to figure out who his new heir is. And so he's Which, checking out these ch these children, um, Draco and Harry, and he's finding Harry, Draco's, both of their living circumstances to be objectionable for 
his heir for a potential. And that heir. would make that would make Narcissa more inclined towards doing what her grandfather wanted, to make her son more attractive as the black heir. You want my son at the International Academy of Magic? That's where he'll go. <laughs> Yeah, but even if Sirius has a will, I'm not sure that it impacts anything. Well, so you have to think about Sirius. Did he have a will? He went it. into prison at 21, just short of his 21st birthday. Actually, I think. I mean, I. I mean, he might have because of his line of work, and death was a possibility at every turn if he had any assets, which I think he inherited from his. But it would have been like uncle? you know, Remus gets my records. Right. It wouldn't have been, you know. He only would have a title, like, if, if he had inherited the title, like, let's say you're doing a noble thing, like right? a noble AU, which is what we're talking about here. If he had inherited the title already, he would have then had a will, so it would be clear who the, what the line of succession was, but he hadn't. Yeah, Alfard left him money, so he might have had money, and he might have, but it, because of his line of work, he might have had, a, like, a will about how to disperse his assets if he died in the field or something. But I doubt there was But I doubt he that. would have considered Harry an asset. No. And... Depending on how legal the definition of grandfather godfather is in the magical world, he may or may not have legal rights to Harry. It's just, it's just what do you want to write in that respect? But was it clear when the will was made, Star? Um, was it clear that it was made before he went into prison? Because that makes a difference. Because if he made the will after he got out, after he broke out, I could see him leaving everything to Harry. But I mean, it's clear he's doing business at the bank. It's clear they don't give a fuck about his circumstances being a you know being at large. It's clear he's spending money. I read a story once where the bank actually had a separate entrance for criminals. Are you wanted by the Ministry of Magic? Please go over here by this line and say this message. <laughs> You'll get sucked in through the back okay. door. <laughs> but for the people who brought up the will situation, <coughs> what was your thinking about the will? The will. Somebody brought. Somebody initially brought up the will. Wouldn't Sirius have a will? That was quite a bit up in the chat. I mean, um, it depends on what do you want. Do you want him to have a will, and what will that will do? Right. That's my point. Is what was the thought about the will? Because if Sirius hasn't inherited the title, his even if he's named Harry as his heir, it doesn't mean anything. If he hasn't actually inherited it, Arcturus couldn't have to name a new heir. Would Arcturus be the executor of his closest family? Uh, yes, probably. Unless he named specifically someone, and he might have. I doubt it would have been Remus, because he thought Remus was a Death Eater. He probably would have named James. Um, would be my guess. But if, in the event the executor is dead, I would imagine it would go to the closest family member. Right. I agree. That, that's how I would write it anyway. But I honestly, if I was going to go the angle of Sirius is dead, and he's contacting his, got his, his grandfather, um, I would not have a will. Um... I don't think the will makes a difference one way or the other. If Arcturus is still alive, see, in the case of the noble thing, which we are doing because Arcturus is looking for a new heir, and he's if, if we're going with the premise Sirius is dead, Arcturus is evaluating the potential candidates for heir. It doesn't matter what Sirius's wishes were about heir; it's irrelevant because Sirius never inherited. So Arcturus is looking for a new heir, so he can name anybody he wants because he still has the title. So Sirius's will, unless it clears him. But here again becomes a potential rat hole. Does clearing Sirius important? Now you might want to bring it up that, but actually James and Lily's will is a better vehicle to clear Sirius than Sirius's own will. Which I've seen done repeatedly. If if we die because our secret was revealed, Peter was a, our secret keeper. He's a motherfucker and he, and he, and he gets nothing. <laughs> <coughs> but 
I would honestly at 50k skip the wheel because yeah. it's a distraction at best and it's a rat hole at worst and all it does is like if I would go honestly the more emotional route the Sirius comes to Arcturus after he dies um goes to established part of a canon in um HP so it wouldn't be a stretch um he tells him what happened Arcturus believes him and he he's so sorry that he left his his grandson in Azkaban he's devastated by it um and Sirius asks, you know, asks him to save Harry, to consider Harry as a a potential heir, and Arcturus does, and that's how he gets on the bench. But this can all be revealed in an epilogue after the fact. Yeah, that way you... the reader doesn't know what's going on until the very end. That that's how I would write it. Traditionally, women don't inherit titles. I mean, you could do that in the magical world, but traditionally, that's not how it goes. Not in Britain. And if somebody were going to buck tradition, I don't think it would be Arcturus Black. Um, no. No. I could see Sirius bucking tradition if he inherited and if Harry were a girl. Say, I'm going to let Harry inherit. I just don't think Sirius, seeing Arcturus Black do that. Also, adding Nymphedora in as a potential, again, adds more complication. Um, you could. And if you're looking at 50k, you don't have room for that kind of complication. Yeah. I mean, you could also do a reveal of Nymphadora is also at the International Academy of Magic. When they get there, she's already, what, she would be like a sixth or seventh year. Or is she already out? She's done. But the thing is, she, she is she already graduated. at Hogwarts. Right. Yeah. yeah she was so, already out of Hogwarts. <clears throat> so, so she graduated the year before they started. So um, him evaluating her as an heir, would he'd have to, if you're going to put that in, he has to have found her um, unacceptable for and passed. Otherwise, your whole plot falls apart. Or she could have rejected it. She could have. Out of solidarity with her mother who was disowned. Yeah. Or Andromeda could have rejected it on her behalf before Nymphadora was even a anything during the disownment process. But I honestly, it's a complication and you only got 50k. If we're looking at 150, 200k, I'd have a whole little section of women's rights. <laughs> but you don't have that kind of room. So there's no point in, um, and I see that's the thing you find you have these ideas that are attractive on the surface. You're like, oh yeah, I would love to explore that, but you only got 50k, ladies and gentlemen. Word economy, looking at word economics, and this is a this is going to take you down a path that is deeply convoluted. So what your what your middle is, what your middle should be, is a mixture of consequences of your inciting event and the build up to your climax it is the it's the climb now you want to you don't want to go a steep climb because that can be in a novel that straight climb up this comes down to pacing that straight climb up can feel intense so you usually want to kind of level out climb level climb level climb which is where if you're doing an angsty story you want to interject some humor you usually have a little bit of a subplot that you kind of you know veer away from to deal with here or there like to your doing things on Harry's behalf to set him up for success in the future that the reader will understand the implications of, but maybe, because maybe you're, in, and this is where it's important to understand who your POV characters are. Maybe they're Harry and Tyr. I would love that. Yeah. Because you need a character who, who is functioning and a functioning adult in this situation. And that way you could have a little side romance for Tyr. He's come to Britain. Um, he's only supposed to be here six months. Now he's been here two years because Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> Because I'm Harry and, Potter's solicitor, which is starting to be the most terrifying phrase ever heard in Britain. 
and Rizelle's giving him eyes, you know, uh, giving him eyes, and he's like, maybe I should just stay a Brit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But then your I think your most interesting subplot could be um in this particular circumstance parcel magic. Because here's Harry, um, who's been moved to the long bottom manor. He's trotting along after Neville, learning about magic. They're having their little lessons about um titles and nobility and etiquette and magical history and all these things. And they're going out into the greenhouse and there's a snake. You got your little subplot. Yeah, and for maybe you could have Draco, maybe you could have um, Neville and Harry keep it a secret, like a fun secret, like they found something really interesting and different and new, and they're not telling anybody. It's their little, it's their little secret, you know. And then maybe they even bring the snake into the house and keep it as a pet. Don't make it a poisonous one. <laughs> make it like a garden snake or something. Um, <coughs> and you know, they could uh, just, just, just to go that route. Now, if you want to, um, yeah, no rune spores. Uh, but that's an interesting rune spore is an interesting thing. We can go back to that later. Because um, I have a little plot bunny where the fates from Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond find Harry Potter when he's a little kid and decide that he's their wizard. You can see how that's going to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is the same snake that strangled. <laughs> Cornelius Fudge. Anyways. <coughs> but, uh, so you had that, just that little tiny, and it, it wouldn't be a big subplot. You wouldn't want to bring any, like, uh, parcel magic, you know, users in. Just him and, just him and Neville and this little snake that they keep talking to. Um, and maybe even, this would be really cute, if Harry accidentally gave Neville parcel magic. That would be cute. Because I think if you center it in, if you want to have final focus on both kids, you could do it in the greenhouse. All this taking place in the green. And um, have Neville kind of coming into his green magic as a result of um, like a green Blood party. Brothers. Exactly. Yeah. Midnight. They could do like a Blood Brother pack. And it, they exchange magical gifts by accident. And Neville could be like like the first like green parcel mage that's ever like risen in like hundreds of years and because maybe it's not an, a very typical ability for parcel mouths is to be have an affinity for green magic and it draws the attention just his emergence as a as a parcel mouth it draws the attention of the international parcel mouths because they're like did anybody feel that little ripple in the parcel magic what was that <laughs> um so you could have like this little I, I think it's a cute subplot because it's about the boys developing magic and um, brotherhood just yeah. being just brothers just being badass little brothers together it'd be great <laughs> so that could be like your little running subplot with them and when you're in harry's point of view because i think a lot of him it also gives you a like a, a parallel a way to parallel uh in, in, in a kind of a, as an opposite parallel of canon of him developing this relationship this completely opposite of his relationship with dudley and very different from and more supportive and actual built on actual loyalty versus what he had with Ron. So mm-hmm. his true first friend is now Neville. And um, that instead of Harry hiding what he, that they help nurture each other. And because Neville also in his way is going to have to heal from the circumstances that, that Tyr and the Diverger rescue him and Neville, him, him and uh, Augusta from. So he's got to come into confidence about his abilities uh, in magic and that he's not a squib and all of this. So, um, um, that could be, 
I think it's a very cute, very charming and lighthearted. Uh, sweet, with the potential for some tears here and there. Uh, of the two of them becoming close and growing in magic together before they before they go to school. Um, now, if you're one of those writers who cannot stand the idea of them not going to Hogwarts, um, they go to Hogwarts. And that's how the book ends, with them going to Hogwarts. Um, and you could have the change have rippled out that when it comes time to do the sorting, Flitwick is doing the sorting because Minerva McGonagall is the headmistress. Yeah, well, I think these two, if these two, if they two spend a year, year and a half or more together, um, and they've shared magic and become blood brothers, I think this is a Hufflepuff sorting. Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, because they're loyal to each other first and foremost. They could even be part of their little their little blood brother pact. <laughs> so you okay. know, and that and that's so, the end of the novel. That 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 is. I mean, you're looking at probably honestly. If I was writing it, that's fifty five. That that's fifty to seventy five k for me. Because to get to get to get them to Hogwarts is harder because you have to deal with Dumbledore. Right. More more, and that would be a tier plot. That yeah, that'd be a tier subplot. Well, actually, Annie McCard. Probably your main plot is all Tyr is your main plot. He he's he he's the main plot driver because mm -hmm. he's the adult POV. He's the one getting stuff done. But the Dumbledore um, part would be a subplot in his plot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here is another case of where it sounds like a good idea, but you can't tack it on. Which somebody mentioned, Harry finds the requirement his first year. That's past. That's be. It's beyond the scope of your story. And when you start thinking that way, you go, "Oh, I can push my story out a little bit." They find them a requirement. No, just say no. Now you're looking at two hundred k, and you don't have an ending in sight. But see, all these ideas individually are interesting, but not they. They shouldn't be in the same pot. Because what if Harry Potter did find the rumor requirement in his first year? What if he was led there by a portrait and he meets the founders? That's a that's a whole novel by itself. We're talking a hundred k of novel right there in one tight little oh my fucking god ball. Yeah. So you have to when it comes to getting to the end of a of a story and not getting distracted when it's every idea that crosses your path. And I think one of the things about as the person who asked the question said that fifty k felt big to them. Okay. That's a different, like, so a little bit that might be I'm trying to fill in my plot to get to 50K. And um, I don't know what, what to add and what to take out and what's going to derail me and how to manage ripples. Am I interpreting that that might be the, why would the room of requirement idea be massive? Um, because him just finding the room of requirement is not particularly interesting. What is he going to find in the room of requirement? Why, would if he, he, why did he find it? Why is it important for him to find it? So if he's going to find it early. It needs to facilitate something in the plot and it needs to do something because the room of requirement was a massive, like, for the purposes of what those kids needed, it was almost like Deus Ex Machina in. It's in definitely the, OP. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like stupidly. It's, it, it's like, I don't know, sticking a fusion reactor in a man's chest. <laughs> Right, it it's huge. So, it, it until until the only way that it, it, as a matter of fact, the room of requirement was such a massive plot device, and it was such a powerful plot device that the only way that it was defeatable was they had to have basically like other kids sneaking around, following them, noting them disappearing, um, 
and then blasting a hole in the wall. I mean, it was just not a, it did something. And then, and then later it comes back as being the place where the Horcrux is hidden, capable of finding anything. And not only that, it was able to contain fiend fire. So it is this massive thing. You don't just throw in. It's like, if you don't do anything with it, it's like you throw in a boulder into a puddle. And why would you do that? So you're going to have Harry Potter find the room of requirements in first year instead of fifth. What, for what purpose? And like Kira said, it would be to massively change the course of his future. He finds some book, some painting, something that is going to take him down a different path. What's that path going to be? So you have now created an entire, you've now created the sequel this is not a new story. This is not the end of your story. This is the sequel. Because if Harry gets to Hogwarts, if that's the end of your 50K story, and then he goes and finds the room of requirements, you've hit rising action. And that's the last thing you want to do. Um, and it could be sometimes, when I was very young, I would hit this point in what is now my zero draft, where I would go, okay, now what next? And looking back on it, I realized I'd hit my ending. Um, And I was tacking on rising action. And I didn't know where to find the ending of my story. And sometimes you see that in fan fiction. You'll see a natural ending. Like, oh, okay, we're we're coming up on the ending. Wait, why am I still got a half a bar of reading left to do? You keep scrolling, you keep scrolling. And you realize, okay, I've got another 50K to read. This, This was not the ending. But it was and then themselves into a corner and, and into an unnatural end. <coughs> and honestly, um, into another novel that got tacked onto the end of their first novel. Sometimes five novels all tacked together because the author didn't know how to wrap one and start another. Um, Which is a learning process. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with learning that. Um, the, the point is, is to learn it, to figure out where your ending is happening. So without going, so let's say, let's say the end of your story. Okay. The end of your story, Harry arrives at Hogwarts. Minerva's the headmistress. You don't have to go into the exactly how this happened. Tears off doing his thing and he deals with Dumbledore. Okay. And you've been seeing some of that, but we don't see the ripples into Hogwarts until Harry gets there. And Harry gets to Hogwarts and Minerva's headmistress, Sprout, he, he gets sorted into, um, Hufflepuff. Sprout is warm and nurturing and he's very happy to have this motherly figure for him with him and for the next seven years of his life. Um, Flitwick is deputy headmaster. Um, I think a saner approach is that the deputy headmaster is not a head of house. Maybe Sinistra is the head of um, Ravenclaw now. And um, they have someone else in entirely to do potions because one of the first things they did was get rid of Snape. Um, so Snape's gone. They've got, so Harry's being told maybe, and this is not explained. Okay. But if he's just told who all the professors and housemasters are and, and then, and then Harry and Neville troop off to their dorm and story ends. And it's obvious to the reader what all is different. Snape's gone. It wouldn't be not- obvious to Harry because Harry never knew Dumbledore to begin with. Right, and he never knew Snape. But the reader's going to know that Harry's not going to have any of those issues with um, Quirrell's not going to be there. Maybe that's one of the things that that Tyr figured out when they got rid of Dumbledore is, is they encountered Quirrell, and it was like, oh, what does the matter? Because he you? was possessed the summer before the school year started. He went to Albania. 
And actually, when they get rid of Dumbledore, Berger could come in and do an update. Minerva, when she gets the wards for the school, it could be one of the last main plot points for Tyr. Is Minerva gets she she gets makes a call to the bank, and um, Ragnar calls Tyr and said, "We've got a call to come check out the wards for Hogwarts because when they settled on Minerva, she said there's something very wrong with them." And it's through the course of figuring sorting out the wards that they discover a Quirrell. They discover the the basilisk down in the down in the um and all of this stuff is all handled that's the, like the last thing you hear from tears they're going to go deal with the wards that there's something dark that the the, the, war, the wards that are keeping the dark things out of the school are not working properly that's the last thing you hear on that and then the next thing you find is quirrell's not there snape isn't there um and there's some like rumor going around they found a basilisk at the school that's all thing all the kids are whispering about it and the story ends because the reader will understand the ramifications of all of these things being gone. Harry's about to have seven years of school, not seven years of bizarre, manipulated adventures leading him to, to death. Right? Right. We know that Voldemort is moving in and out of Quirrell's body throughout the course of the year. Um, we know that Quirrell breaks into the bank because Voldemort wants the resurrection stone, not the, uh, the, the philosopher's stone. Um, so we know that he touches Harry and the, so, so he's not, he, he's not possessed by Voldemort. They probably, they probably separated because he was afraid that the bank security might see him, but he's still acting on Voldemort's behalf. He's still carrying Voldemort around in some fashion or another, or Voldemort was waiting off scene somewhere for him. But we also know that he's leaving the body a quarrel because he feeds on that unicorn yeah without um so he's in, he, he's, a, he's in a wraith when he's forming he does that right right so by the time quarrel comes back to britain around july he already has voldemort basically in his pocket so you know he's a problem now yeah. once they get a hold of quarrel they'll be a the, the reader will extrapolate that the verger had taken care of everything now you could you could leave it a little bit open ended. It's not clear that Voldemort's completely dealt with, but what it is clear is Voldemort's not in the school, which allows you to close the first book but leave the potential to write another book if you want. Which I would do. Is, I like to give myself room. Yeah, I like to give myself. I rarely close the door completely on a book unless I just am totally done with it. Um, but I'd often like to leave myself room to want to come back to a book to have a sequel, which doesn't mean leaving loose ends that are going to give me quite get people have, you know, have people questioning me for all time and eternity. It just means giving myself room and that would give you room. You give you, you, you sort it out so that Voldemort's not in the school, but you don't necessarily close the door that Voldemort's dead. He could still be out there. The Diverger could be hunting him. Um, you could actually make it clear the Diverger are hunting him, and then it's up to the reader to to, to have their own headcanon about whether or not the Diverger catch him or not. Um, so, but by going beyond the end, once because you, your first book, if you've got your your beginning, is getting Harry situated into a new living circumstance. He meets Tyr, you know. So you, you kind of your end your end of your beginning arc is Harry's in his new circumstance, and Augusta ends. Then Augusta and Neville, they're beginning their life together. Harry's learning about magic. He's learning about his brother. Tyr is dealing with what's the safe path for Harry to go forward. Will it be Hogwarts? Will it be something else? Okay. 
and you as the writer have to know at this point which way you're going because it matters because this is Tyr's plot, which he's driving the main plot at this point. And you could have Augusta kind of direct that thing about whether it's Hogwarts or International Academy of Magic. Um, it could be like, um, so we're thinking we're going to send Harry to International Academy of Magic. And Augusta's like, well, you know, traditionally, they're both nobles. So they probably should go to Hogwarts with their peers. So y'all boys just go get rid of Dumbledore. <laughs> Put on her creepy hat and go about her business. <laughs> there you go. So once you've it's up to you, path, I would I would really like to explore the International Academy of Magic. The more I think about it, the more I'd like to explore that. Um, but uh, but that's because it's my invention and I'm really attached to it. <laughs> but that's just me, you know. Um, so you gotta know which way you're going. Um, well, but the thing is, if she's if, if this is again where if if there if your ultimate goal as the author is to send them to the International Academy of Magic and not focus a ton on the Dumbledore side of things, right? Her making suggestions, even if they're going to go to the International Academy of Magic, her making suggestions that they look into Hogwarts just so that to reassure themselves is a distraction. It's it's an and then. It's tacking on another subplot, which subplots are going to add in a novel. Even a minor subplot is going to add 10 to 15,000 words. If you do it right. So it's your inclination to fix all the problems that you know are in canon. But you have to decide what problems are your problem for your for this for this particular story. No story can be all things. Right. And that is one of the inclinations of and honestly, it's not just a pantser problem. Plotters want to do this too. They want to try to fix more than the scope of the story will allow or that even makes sense. And but the thing is, plotters figure out earlier on that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Pantsers are struggling with this in the middle of the writing. And honestly, sometimes plotters struggle with this in the middle of the writing too because they'll go, "Oh, this is not a good thing to add on." And then they discover ten thousand words later that wasn't a good thing to add on. What the fuck was I thinking? That seemed benign when I did it. Now the ripples of it are just tearing my story apart. And what the fuck was I thinking? So <coughs> it happens now to it's everybody. Now I'm gonna it, do. It just happens less to plotters. Um, the and then thing is more like more typically a sense of of pantsers, more typically an issue of pantsers. Um, but plotters can stumble into it too, which is why I understand the impulse to add on. But whenever, but I also understand I, because I do understand the impulse to add on. I also understand that you have, when you have to stop and evaluate the add on and go, is this taking me where I need to go? Is this helping? Or is this going to just distract me and lead me down a bad path? And everything you're thinking of adding into your story has to be evaluated that way. Um, so if you know your endpoint is getting them to Hogwarts, having them find the room of requirement is not just not in that trajectory. It is a different trajectory entirely. But it might not be a bad idea for a second book if you really are that if you're really interested. But the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because you have to do something with it. it. That's that's a big, big stone to throw. And it's going to make me yes. cool. Yes, yes. I forgot that Miko was a gene carrier in, in, on Atlantis. But I take great comfort in the fact that neither one of my betas noticed. And I was the one that noticed and took care of it. No, you didn't. Um, I don't think it's clear when Albus <laughs> Dumbledore becomes Supreme Mugwump of the ICW. I don't think that's actually clear in canon at all no i was thinking that he probably see for what i'm writing in um for rough trade 
Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, everybody, like, I, but I'm really proud of the fact that I saw it first, or at least I saw it before anybody pointed it out to me. <laughs> but, um, I, for my, uh, rough trade, I decided that he probably joined the, um, ICW in the, the mid-70s, um, and spent the mid-70s and 80s working his way towards Mugwump. Because I don't think he could have come in, say, in 1990 and been elected to the leadership of the body. That doesn't make any fucking sense to me. I think he had to work really hard for it. Because otherwise it implies that his fame is, like, international. And I think that's bullshit. Yeah. So, for me, I think it's something that he had to work for. Because there are other men and women in this body that had to have been there for decades. Right? So, why would he get preferential treatment and be made the leader without... um? any kind of history with the body. It doesn't make any sense. It's like coming into your senior year of high school as a new student and being elected student body president. Also, you have to be careful not to throw obstacles in your path that are fanon rather than canon. It's one thing to deal with canon obstacles. It's another thing entirely to give yourself fanon obstacles. Um, and what the fuck did I just click on that launched the target app? I chose the mid-70s for a couple of reasons, but I don't know if he'd have joined in the 40s and 50s when he was a young man. I think that the ICW is more of a an elders, state elders kind of situation. But also... That, the, the, yeah, ICW is exactly what I meant about don't give yourself fanon complications, because it is not... There's nothing about the ICW canonically that should be an obstacle to Harry... Right. And Draco or Harry and Neville going to school anywhere. That is a fa the fact that the ICW is a significantly powerful magical body is a fanon construct. So, and I I get it. I mean, it's crept into my head. No, AJ, it too. wasn't. That's not mine. Um, but for me, I just didn't think he would come into it and be made immediately the leader. That he would have had to have kind of built a cabal to take over. And I think he did it. Um, I think he was a member because Britain sent him. And eventually, like after the, the prophecy was revealed and Harry Potter um, was revealed that he moved by the time Harry Potter became a first year, he moved into a position of power of the ICW for his own benefit. Like the race, some reason he moved into chief warlock and while, and basically he pulled strings for the Minister of Magic, probably for decades, because he's a so-called hero and leader of the light. But he yeah, demurred actually being made the minister. Yeah, the chief warlock position is probably, from what we know of canon, the the one that the position that probably has more um, actual power, canonically speaking. But you can make this the ICW as powerful as you want them to be. And I usually choose to write them as having actual. I tend to write them being like analogous to the UN. Um, but even that has a lot of limitations on it. So, um, which is fine. I mean, the thing is, somebody mentioned that, you know, Harry Potter is difficult to write in because it's so much fanon versus canon and, and it can feel like stealing all the time. But the thing is, once you've read something four or five times, I mean, it, it has become like a trope that is pretty well integrated, especially since I read so sparsely in the fandom. If I've seen something four or five times, I've got to figure it's out there at least 500 times. Right. I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that Dumbledore probably wasn't known internationally. What I, but I would say is that I doubt he had the kind of worshipful following anywhere outside of Britain. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure even if he killed a dark wizard who had gone 
rogue all over the place. You know, people probably perceive Grindelwald as, um, yeah, a European problem. So I don't see the other members of the ICW taking a knee for Dumbledore, personally. I, it's respect, yes. Worship, no. So when it comes to um, comp- you know, when you're putting stuff into your plot, you know what is going to help me move my plot forward? What is the useful? Ooh, save my tablet from its keyboard. Um, that was a little crash. If that if you guys heard that. Um, <laughs> but the um, when you kind of are trying to figure out what am I going to deal with, what is a useful, you know, when you're trying to overcome the hurdles because you got to figure your main trajectory in the story is getting Harry free and clear of Dumbledore. Or free and clear, if, if you're going to send him to Hogwarts, free and clear of Dumbledore. Or free and clear of any obstacles to him being able to attend school internationally. Which means his lawyer has probably got a hit list. Literally or figuratively, depending upon how you want to look at it. Um, and then Someone asked me um, how Tyr Warhide got his um, use name. Um, that's because he took down a dragon for his mama. Yeah. Dragons mentioned in all the world, isn't it? I think so, but it's a. It, but sometimes a lot of little details like that get lost along the way. Um, he uh, he killed a dragon for his mother when he was relatively young by Diverger standards. Um, so when it comes to what are you going to focus on, what what are you going to bring into your city? Again, I think one of the things that's really important is that you have a vision. If you don't have a vision, you're not going to know how to evaluate, right? Because, like, you could have you could have 50 of these, like, 50 ideas up in the chat, and they can all sound fun. If you don't understand your end game and you don't understand the emotional arc of your story, how do you evaluate them? So what are you trying to accomplish? What are your thematic elements for your story? And at some point, pants or a plotter, you've got to sort that stuff out. Otherwise, there's no way to effectively evaluate an idea. And say, is this fit in my story arc or does it not? And then, as painful as it is, once you know your end game, and once you know your thematic elements, because you know, if you're telling a like family-oriented sort of story from Harry's side, it's sort of a family focus for him, and from a tear side, it is a kind of a. I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. The word is just not coming to me. It's more of a. It's sort of this is Sparta kind of vibe to it. It's right, it's just in my part. head, right? It's, it's right. Yeah. Art. Yeah. Um, if that is your emotional tone for the two, two different POV characters, and that's kind of where you're going. Um, it's important to understand that that, and, and the, 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 the soft relief on Harry's side is um, learning how to be part of a family and learning how to accept love. And you've got this, um, this little softness with the parcel magic and getting a little a brother and all that kind of stuff. An older brother by a day. Um, Getting a grand. He gets a grand. Deal with that. Yeah. Because it's not going to all be sunshine and roses for him. Adapting to a family that cares about him. And and on Tyr's side. I think that you could insert the softness on his justice march kind of thing. um, With the falling in love. With the chieftain's son kind of thing. So you could do that. And so those could be your main emotional arcs. That you've got in your story. Um, and your th- thematic elements could be justice and family or um, retribution and family or something along those lines. So, okay. So, and you know, your end game is your, your end point is Harry is going to be at a school. Now, if it's the international Academy of magic, you could have Draco showing up there. If it's, and then you're gonna have a little epilogue 
where Sirius, where that you find out what what's behind all this is that Sirius is a ghost, visited Arcturus, and set all this in motion. Okay, so you've got all that in mind. You want to know how to get from where you start, which is Harry on a bench talking to Arcturus and getting a business card, to that end point. And you figured out your emotional themes, and you figured out your end game. Then every idea that comes to you, every and then, has to be evaluated, first of all, does this fit in that trajectory? And then second of all, if it does fit in that trajectory, potentially, would the ripples of this thing that seems like a good idea be too big for me to want to deal with? Not that you couldn't deal with, but some some things have such big ripples that it would be 200K to sort them out. And if you like it, write it down, set it aside, put it for later, and write another story. Because your story can't be all things as we've already talked about. Does it serve your emotional content? Does it serve your plot? Does it serve your character? These are the questions that I ask myself when I zero draft, which is basically where I do my pantsing. (laughs) Because your idea has to come from somewhere. Um, If Harry doesn't go to Hogwarts, does the troll still happen where more kids die? That leaves the Dumbledore getting ousted. Um, My answer preliminarily would be probably no, because why would Dumbledore be setting a trap for Voldemort? For Harry to for Harry to interact with Voldemort, if Harry's not even there, so that always felt to me as a contrived thing to pit little Harry against to see if the prophecy was real. Right. So if Harry's not there, why would Dumbledore have the stone there? So why would Voldemort be chasing it? So why would Voldemort have a troll in the school? So why would there be a three-headed dog guarding a stone that isn't in the school anyway? I mean, you back it up, and we start reverse engineering the problem, and of course none of that stuff happens. But if it did, Harry wouldn't know. Right, and it doesn't matter. It's not his fault. It's not Harry's problem that Dumbledore is a corrupt asshole. What would happen is, let's say all that shit happened. So Harry and Neville and Draco... Or chilling out at the International School of Magic. You can pick your location. Say they're in Switzerland. And Draco and Harry are trying to get Neville to go skiing with them for Harry's birthday. And that's and that's their Halloween. They're going to go skiing. Um, and they're all little kitty hill going skiing in Switzerland. And they get back to school. They have hot chocolate. They have dinner. And they go to bed. And that's their Halloween. Because they know nothing about Hogwarts. But you wouldn't write that. Because this is 50k. And it ended when they arrived at the school. That's the point we're making. When you when you push these ideas in. And you ask these questions. Um, and they're legitimate questions. But they don't serve this particular story. It's like your story is a pot. What you got in this pot is for your story. You don't want to put weird things in your pot, y'all. Say you're making vegetable soup. You don't want to put beef in your pot. It won't be vegetable soup anymore. It'd be tasty, but it wouldn't be vegetable soup anymore. So you have to decide where your priorities lie in your story and what serves your story and what doesn't serve your story. And in your rough draft, you can make mistakes. Don't think we're striving for perfect here. But you also have to be prepared in your second draft to cut the fat. And be harsh with yourself. But the problem is, is it's the, I think that people aren't getting to the end of their first draft in, in, the, in the vein of the question because they, they add too many things in and it's hard to manage the ripples and they don't get to the end. And you have to just, this is one of those things like in the process of getting to where you're 
planning to go. You have to be a little bit ruthless with yourself. And if you come up short, which has happened for people like doing the quantum bang, where they go, wow, I was really like stayed on track. And I was like, they, they were like, you know, that whole sea hill, conquer hill kind of thing mentality. They, they come up short. Like, oh, I'm like 10K under. What do I do? And that's when they go back with an alpha reader and they go, okay, where could I add something? What what might be missing? And the thing is, if a plot is tight, sometimes there's nothing to add. But sometimes it's like, well, you could add a little subplot here or you could flesh out this thing about this character in this way. And next thing you know, there's six or seven K added. Um, and that's <coughs> a lot, honestly, a lot easier than to just never get anywhere because you just keep adding stuff trying to trying to get so i mean it's better to see the hill and conquer the hill and then go back in and add in a little subplot that you can weave in what you could do dither for if you're yeah if you're bombarded by these little ideas as you're writing um make yourself a separate file folder on your computer and make documents for each little idea and drop them in that folder and then if you get to the end of your story and you're 10k short go through your little idea folder and see if there's anything in there that can help you flesh out your story without bloating it and taking it into an entirely new different direction i just make a little collection of ideas that don't work you have to be ruthless. These don't work for this story. They might work for another story. And just leave them in this folder until you need them. And you can also have your vanity file of things that are in the future that could be for your next story if you're happy with the way it came out. So like somebody mentioned problems at Hogwarts could be why Hermione transfers later. This is where you start getting into the I want to save Draco. I want to save Hermione. I want to save everybody. And you start distracting yourself with your wish list so you gotta tell yourself i have decided that my story ends on september 1st of 1991 right is that the first first of hogwarts this story ends mm -hmm. on september 1st 1991 and anything that happens after that date i may have set the stage for ripples that go beyond that which you will have because you're changing a ton but i set this i set the stage this is my end game is this day getting them to school and I am changing things and following ripples that lead me to September 1st. And anything after that is not my lookout. But I, will, I can make some notes of fun, potentially good consequences of what, or even bad consequences of the changes I'm making in the event that I want to revisit this universe at another time. But don't let yourself get distracted. And the actually one of the things you also don't want to do, it's one thing to foreshadow something slightly that you are certain would happen it's another thing to heavily foreshadow something you're not going to address at all um so you got to be careful that you not get too distracted by your wish list it's way beyond the scope of your because you can put in a fuck ton of foreshadowing um like heavily foreshadowed at things that aren't addressed and then they just feel like bait and switch and you, you get angry emails yeah, subtle foreshadowing is different. That's where you kind of like hint at something very slightly. You're kind of laying the groundwork, but only the very really astute readers even leave and notice it. And then they don't even know necessarily that it was foreshadowing until they read the next book. And they go, oh, you foreshadowed that two books ago. Oh, I get it. Something yeah. You can't always, you cannot control what readers get out of your work. Sometimes they're going to miss your foreshadowing. Sometimes they're going to see something that's not there at all. And you can't control that. So there's no point in trying. But you can control what craft techniques you put on the table and into your narrative. It's all about your intent, not what they receive. Right. But 
if you foreshadow something obviously and overtly in a story, like at the beginning of a story or in the middle of a story, and you don't address that in any fashion in the story, it feels incomplete. That's not the kind of foreshadowing technique you do. That's not the kind of groundwork you do for future books. Although I see people do that all the time. It's clumsy. Um, that's not, that just leaves a book feeling unfinished. So um, you got to be careful about like trying to, you know, hammer a wish list in because you're, and it, what happens is you are trying, people are trying to put in too many things into the story because they want to fix beyond the scope of this, what's in the story. But the thing is, if you do it well, you can lay the foundation for a lot of fixes that you could write side stories or additional stories without beating your narrative to death. So you want to lay that solid foundation of Harry is in a better place. He's going to have a rock solid family. He's going to get a good uninterrupted magical education. Tyr is running around behind the scenes as his solicitor, which has become a new and terrifying term to magical Britain. <laughs> They didn't understand what solicitor apparently meant before now, but, you know, warrior solicitor is not something they ever wanted to deal with. Um, <laughs> he came to my office with a sword on his back. I think he of course ads. I gave him what he wanted. <laughs> so, you know, you've got, if, if this is this is your arc and this is your focus, you know, you don't want to have like a big political subplot, a big political subplot at the bank. Because a big political subplot of the bank could be useful in a 200K story, but it probably isn't useful in this story. Um, so it's why it's important to stay, evaluate what are the ripples. If I do this thing, this thing might fit in my plot. Okay, it might fit in my trajectory, but managing the ripples of this big thing that I'm thinking about doing could add 40 or 50K on top of the rest of the story, do I want to tackle something that big? And that's where you have to value it. Do you want to deal with an idea that big? And if you're trying to, it's, and when it comes to novel building, like for people who are used to writing shorter stories and they're trying to get to the point where they build work to novels, I would say no. You don't want to add big ripples into your story because big ripples mean big words. You know, so like they get rid of, what's the guy, what's the uncle that was terrible to Neville? Um... Algernon, Algernon. Um, yeah. So they get rid of. So let's say, let's say you decide that uh, you've got rid of you, that you're going to bring Algernon back, and he's going to keep trying. Um, he, Algernon's actually a dark lord, and he, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> he's he, dark lord Algernon, and he's trying to assassinate Harry and Neville. Okay, it could actually fit in the arc this particular narrative arc, but it is a lot of words to deal with these assassination attempts. They can't figure out where they're coming from and they got to get the boys to safety. And are they going to be able to start totally a school series of unfortunate events right there? Right. So, um, it's not yeah. necessarily a bet. You necessarily can't do cracky, but we can. <laughs> it's only cracky because I said the dark Lord Algernon. That's the only reason why it's crack. If I just said, if I just said uncle Algie was trying to kill Neville and Harry, nobody would have blinked because he tried to do that in canon. Because <laughs> um, right, he did. He definitely tried to kill him in canon. I mean, Mark, twice, at least twice, he tried to kill Neville. Because right. apparently a dead squib was better than... Yeah. It's terrible. So, it's only because I called him a dark lord that anybody <laughs> thought that was crack. All right? But well, I do think he's a dark wizard. Honestly. Yeah. Honestly, I agree. But so, like, let's say... So, it was a language choice. But let's say he is trying to kill them, right? Okay? 
Um, and let's say he's competently trying to kill them, trying to figure out where these attacks are coming from and are the boys ever going to be safe outside of the wards of the house? Are they going to be able to go to school? Not necessarily a derailment. It's a subplot. It's not necessarily a plot derailment because it is in the trajectory of getting Harry to school. And it is a potential consequence of getting Algernon ousted from um, Augusta and Neville's life. But it is words. It is a lot of words. It has big It's ripples. a lot of words. It has big, big ripples. So do you want to do it? I would say no. I would say that if I were counseling somebody about this particular plot, I would say, do you want to add 30 or 40K onto this? <coughs> and they'd be like, well, hell no. Do you have no, time to write 30 or 40K? Is that something you want to do? And they'd be like, no. I'm like, then don't put that particular ripple in. If you want to add little conflict, you want to add little conflict, little ripples that don't add so um little ripple little ripples maximum impact um so it's important to evaluate these ideas when they come up does this help me does it give me a lot of words you know are those words if it is a lot of words is that something i'm willing to do because it all is bright and shiny when it's when it's pumping through your creative brain your brain is going yes that is so pretty i love it and then, but oh. eh. <sighs> And I know some people are not, like, they can become really enamored of an idea, and they'll, like, lose interest if they can't write whatever the giant, brilliant thing is that they're enamored with, even if it's going to be 500K. But the problem is then they start down that path, and they never write more than 50 of the 500K, and then it's just this thing that stalled out, and they wish they'd never started. I and that's why I mean, it's better to, like, plan for Find three or four novels versus one big giant ass novel because yeah. it's just like if you really like the idea of dark lord algernon i'm just using that as a cracky joke thing but him trying to come back he could come back in, in year two or year three he doesn't have to come back before they go to school so you don't have to cram everything in the kitchen sink in into this one book so you you put that you put you write that idea down algernon tries to kill her and then you're like but that's a lot of words and then you're like but you, let's say you finished the story that you intended to write and you're like, you know, I could have him try to get to them between second and third year. And now you've got another, maybe it's a short story this time because it's very focused. Somebody tries to assassinate Harry. And now Tears got his axe again. He's having to function as Harry's solicitor. They'd be like, somebody put an ad to paper. Will you fuckers stop messing with Harry Potter? His solicitor has visited half the households in Britain. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, not, it doesn't mean you have to, if you like an idea, you don't necessarily have to abandon the idea, but maybe it, just telling yourself it doesn't fit in the story. The ripples might be too big. Now, if you're not great at evaluating ripples, that's where you poke a friend and you say, how big are these ripples? Help me figure this out. And it's important to have somebody who's not just a rabid enabler. Who thinks that more is better. Always better. Because, because honestly, readers are greedy. They don't care if you go 20k over your um your word goal and you're demoralized by it. Well, not in this fic. <laughs> but, I mean, I've seen creative chats, you know, because I'm on quite a few servers, but, like, they'll have, like, writing chats. People are, like, trying to, like, plot an idea. And it's just, like, somebody's trying to keep an idea contained. And it just, like, blows up the suggestions people give about, oh, it could go here, it could go here, it could go here, it could go here, it could go here. And it's, like... They're never going to get this story written. Not with the way 911 only writes 5K. <laughs> right? Like if only someone mentioned something um, sexy. Okay, here's the thing. 
because you've got two POVs and you've got, you know, you've got Harry settling in at Longbottom Manor, becoming a brother, blood brother with Neville and doing the parcel magic and having their little cute snake secret. Um, then you've got Tyr running around suing the shit out of everybody. He literally does not have time to get laid on screen. It'd be, I'd probably have a fade to black moment if they're, if they're going to build to some intimacy, like they may have a first kiss or something and then fade to black. Um, I mean, maybe Roselle is like, you know, really enamored with Tyr being all in on giving this kid the best possible life. And he's like, you know, I want to have his babies. (laughs) (laughs) And he makes a play, right? And then it fades to black because you don't have time for it at 50K. Harry Potter is a very wordy fandom in the sense that you've got a lot of, you got to deal with magic, you got to deal with establishing your version of what the government's rules are because it's not clear in canon. And so people will impose their headcanon on it if you don't give them some structure. Um, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying to devote 20K of a 50K story into explaining your government structure. I'm not saying that. But you're going to have to put something into explaining how they execute the will, how they get Harry to... Um, Augusta, um, how they get rid of Algernon, all of this stuff is going to have to be explained to some fashion. So you're going to have to devote and it's not just the obvious things you can just gloss over in a contemporary procedural fandom where it's sort of obvious how a child is removed from a a dangerous parent's custody. Um, And you also need to take in the fact that Harry's 10 years old. He's already suffered quite a bit at Privet Drive. He's going to need health care. He's underweight. He's undersized for his age. He's been in a cupboard. He's going to need mind healing. Um, you can gloss over it, but it's going to be there. It has to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense for him just to be like he was in canon. Like he went from this downtrodden little kid in a cupboard to what we got in the first book. Now, see, I would probably write it um, to kind of carry through a little bit the light. See, I would make Tears fierceness and how Wizarding Britain becomes afraid of him, like a little bit of the lighthearted element of the story. Not yeah. cracky, but but kind of the way of interjecting a little bit of humor. It's kind of dark humor, but it's humor. And I would probably have he- Harry associate Tear with safety, even if he's, you know, even if, even if, Augusta is grand and he's got his brother and so I would think he would be very distrustful of healers and stuff and that when he is around when he's dealing with these healing issues and that stuff that he wants his safety person there so you know so he's got maybe he's got his wizarding healers and stuff and they're all tend to be very tense because the solicitor is going to be present (laughs) (laughs) Master Potter insists that the solicitor be present (laughs) And I would just probably just pull that thread and keep. There'd be a question on the side: Who brings the lawyer to the doctor's office? Harry Potter does. That's right. <laughs> Is the solicitor going to be present? Is he going to carry the axe? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I would I would probably continue, and even if he were with, even if he were getting diverger healing, I probably would have him still associate tear with healing, with safety, and want tear <laughs> yeah. present. It honestly puts Tyr in a pseudo parental role. Um, yeah, there will be there. You could have a mild, like a very mild paternal vibe, where because Harry's very young, he's naive, he's been abused, he's been neglected, and he's lonely. He's a very lonely little boy, and now here is this person who is kick ass and smart and 
prepared to go to the wall and over it for him. And I could definitely see a little bit of hero worship there too. Um, Cause you know, Tyr would be his person. And yeah. he would and say so I- the best thing because Tyr said it was good for him. Like, okay. If Tyr says. <laughs> if Tyr says. Um, and I think that I would probably, because like, because one of the, one of the potential paths that this person said was a, was a mentor relationship. That's, I would totally want to build that vibe between Tyr and Harry. So I would want to him to associate Tyr with safety so I could have points of intersection for them where Augusta is like owling Tyr and saying, young master Potter requests your presence. (laughs) (laughs) He Um, gets there. Neville and Harry both have brooms. We need a broom lesson. (laughs) (laughs) We need to learn how to broom before we go to school. So we don't like idiots. (laughs) So you can bring some both poignant moments in doing this. And you can bring in lighthearted moments doing this. And it allows you potentially to fulfill more of a family loving vibe in that way. And then you get tears kind of justice march going on the other track. Um, And then that also helps you focus the emotional tone of the story around, you know, when you do these scenes where you're handling stuff like what is the tone of them how are you going to approach them and that also helps you narrow down which of the ideas you have do they fit one of the tones that i'm establishing for my story right honestly poor tear i mean he's having to run around solving all of all these problems dealing with all these assholes and then on top of it because he's exhibited some serious paternal vibes the chieftain's son is now trying to court him <laughs> right i can i and i love that I love that line <laughs> Sam Nick is serious Harry getting upset and going, I want my solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> Which will become the worst words anybody can hear in Harry Potter's presence. <laughs> do, do we have to call him? <laughs> yeah, we have to call him. <laughs> so if anybody has questions, um oh, I I'm somebody asked about the so I think I think subtle foreshadowing would be we could talk about that in a Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely take that out as a as a as a um, future podcast question for sure. Um, so does any did anybody have any questions about like how to evaluate an idea for how big the ripples are or you know um, it's a little bit it, there is a lot of be ruthless with yourself in this process because an idea can really spark your creative interest and um, you just kind of have to. Sometimes go, this just does not fit the story's trajectory, or I'm getting myself into a lot of words with this and probably more words than I want. Um, now I saw somebody once lay all the background. They took it, they took an idea out because it, it, it would have been huge. It it was, it was this little idea they threw in would have been triple the length of their actual original story. It was much bigger than their original concept, right? It was it, it, would, be, it, it would have be, it would have become the concept, right? It, as opposed to their original idea. It, it would have consumed. It, it it was like a parasite, you know? Anyway, it was huge. And so she took it out because she recognized that she recognized on her own that it was it wasn't just a boulder in a pond. It was a dam. It it stopped everything and created a new story. It consumed everything in its path. And um, she took it out, which was the way to go. Otherwise, her original story idea didn't need to be there. Because um, you don't want your original story idea to become the subplot. <laughs> That's not the goal. 
But the thing is, she kept all of the... She liked her, her world building that led up to this big idea. And she liked the foreshadowing she had done and all the interesting stuff she had done to lead up to that so much that she couldn't bear to take it out. So she left all that in. <gasps> so she left all the lead up to this big thing she took out. Oh, no. Left it in the story. And it's just there, like this weird turd floating in a pool. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is this? I don't know what you're doing. So, I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah. It's just, it's so, and the thing is, but that, that's what happens sometimes, is authors get so enamored with an idea that they can't bear to part with it, or they can't bear to part with all of it. Um, is there some kind of rule of thumb for figuring out how an I, wordy an idea will be? Um, rule of I thumb, no. That, no. I think that it comes with experience. Like, I know how much it's going to take me to write a sex scene. I know where I'm going to fall on the sex scene, depending on how the sex scene is worded. Like if it's like if I want to do a very physical sex scene, this is how many words, words I'm going to use. If I'm going to lean towards an emotional sex scene, it's going to be a little shorter. Um, I've never written a simple court scene in my life because um, if I'm going to write a court why scene, five k. Why would you have a why would you have a simple court scene? Hey, so the here's point? the thing. What is the, what is the function of a simple right? court scene? Right, okay, a court met. scene is 5K in the middle of my chapter. <laughs> Whatever else I put in my chapter, that's 5K right there at least. If not more, depending on how many witnesses I got and what's going on. Um, it, it's like you just learn through your own process what you need, how much room you need to write a particular plot point. Um, so I don't know how a pantser would determine their estimated word count. But I base my estimates on my on my zero draft. Well, I also base my estimates on, sometimes I can just kind of spitball based upon how I would develop an idea. So some, right. so like when we talk about this idea, I would say that for me, to, me 50K would be the concept we talked about, the kind of beginning, middle, end, with the beginning being meeting our chairs on the bench, the end being they get just get to a school. Um, there's an epilogue, with Arcturus and serious little ghostly forms. And then the middle is, is tear and Harry, the family vibes, the justice vibes. That's 50 K. I can see that just spitballing it based upon, I know my writing style. I understand how in a non Harry Potter fandom, that would be a little shorter. Harry Potter always takes more words. So that's maybe a long novella, maybe 35 K. Um, yeah. In another fandom, Harry Potter's going to be a little bit more. You got inner species politics and blah blah blah. Um, so that, but again, this comes down to also writing style. So I know how I write, and I know how long it takes me to kind of approximately get an idea out. That's just spitballing. Sometimes when I see like somebody puts up their project file on Rough Trade, and they, based upon their summary and what little bits in their project file blurb, I would go, okay, they're saying they're going to write this in fifteen. I couldn't write that that idea without 75,000 words. And right? that's based upon... Yeah, based I've been upon, thinking the same thing. I was like, ooh, 75, just, maybe 100. That's based upon my experience of how I would write in that fandom, okay? And how much show versus tell you would do and what I would think was important to just put on screen, blah, blah, blah. We did, a we did a plot drift a little while ago about Buck becoming a Sentinel. So somebody says Buck, Buck becomes a Sentinel. Well, that in and of itself isn't necessarily a lot of words. It could be. I mean... Not necessarily. Buck becomes a sentinel. You know, you know, he's walking through the fire station one day and all of a sudden a white tiger shows up and he goes, oh, hey. And the white tiger turns him into sentinel and that's it. And Eddie's got a black jaguar and it's like, he's like, oh, hey. And, you know, that could be 3K, one and done. 
Buffy becomes a sentinel. We've during done that in his in right. Stargate. <laughs> right. Buffy becomes a sentinel during um, <laughs> the tsunami. Well, that's a. Little It'll go bit up more... eventually on the podcast. On the podcast channel. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> become, which is what we plotted, which is Buck becomes a sentinel during the tsunami. That's a little bit more complicated. Buck becomes sentinel during a tsunami. He puts Christopher in a tree and makes him sing Disney songs so he, while he rescues people so he can keep track of him. Okay, that's even getting a little bit more complicated. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, you know, how how complex this is where it becomes important to know how complicated the idea is going to and so like when we were talking earlier so i don't think there's there's not a rule of thumb it depends upon your writing style how how much show versus tell you do how much you are inclined to personally skip um and the other thing is um like we talked earlier like in this idea if you added a let's say here going to the bank and they find out that the reason the reason that the Potter's will was not executed was because a diverger was black was bribed to not execute, as opposed to the wisdom Wizenigamot sealed it. Okay, so let's say it's a diverger corruption. Well, because Tyr is your main POV character, you've now got this big issue at the bank. I would say you've doubled your work. Potentially, if you explore the ripples, if there's, it depends upon where you go with it. If you, if you've got a big corruption issue at the at the bank, where Dumbledore has inserted a significant amount of corruption at the bank, let's say this is where you go with it. Dumbledore has managed to sneak in a significant amount of corruption at the bank, and it's been going on under Ragnarok's nose, and he didn't know about it. Mm. Maybe there's a warring clan that's trying to sneak power, get power out from underneath. Okay. Them. Okay. So you've got this big political quagmire you've inserted in because you want because because this is the device you chose well if you don't do anything with that you just throw it out there that some other warring clan had snuck people in and they were taking bribes and stuff to help destabilize the power underneath from underneath ragnarok and there's now ragnarok is doing all these investigations to try to figure out who all has been being bribed and the you know the britain branch of um Gringotts is completely and utterly destabilized, and and you throw this out there, but then you go nowhere with it. You're gonna get some questions. Well, that's not many words. There's not many words to do that, but it's gonna be a hot fucking mess. I would say to write that to conclusion that you've entered a giant subplot. It's probably the main subplot, actually. Now, if it's just one asshole that Dumbledore is bribing, literally just one, Tyr can kill him. Problem solved. One and done. But if it's a major political scandal and it's about a warring tribe and you've got this whole thing that you've worked up that you think is really interesting based upon diverger, um, political infrastructure and, you know, um, it, you know, warring, warring clans within the diverger because you think that's interesting. And I don't disagree with you that it's interesting, but it is a derailment and it's a lot of words. A lot. It, of to words. explore it. I mean, that, that sent me 100K. Yeah. And that's what I mean. So it's like... Let's say, I mean, I went down that rabbit hole fast of what this could mean, how much of it you expose. Now, you could know it all in your head, but expose very little of it to the reader, in which case it's not a big, it's not a big rat hole. And it's just like a tear killed the one dude, Ragnarok's investigating the rest, and the reader doesn't need to know anything else. You can hold the rest of it in your head. But when you start exposing more of that to the reader, you're starting to foreshadow a bigger plot. And if you go nowhere with it, bad craft. 
and the reader's going to feel like the story is incomplete. And worst of all, they might find that storyline. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you with the subplot is they find that storyline more interesting than your main storyline. Then all of a sudden they're on a a AO3 writing your unexplored subplot. Just saying. So that's why it's really, you have to be really careful about ripple management with how big an idea you bring in. So it's hard when somebody asks about, is there a rule of thumb for how big an idea is? Rule? No. But the more ripples an idea has and the more you expose of those ripples to the reader, the more words. Because they move throughout your plot. And if, if Tyr, who's Diverger, is central to your plot, you can't have a big thing going on with the Diverger. A huge thing, potentially. And then just leave it dangling. Or if you follow it through to its conclusion, you've doubled your word. I um, had a subplot in All the World that I removed. Because it was it had the potential to be a boulder. Um, it was about Tyr, and well, it was mostly about Roselle. Um, and in the background of all the world, there's this there's this little winged baby thing going on. Well, in the original Zero draft, that was actually a little darker because the dude in question that was trying to get his niece introduced to Roselle um, eventually tries to kill him because he won't meet his niece because he was trying to basically undermine the leadership of the Diverger um, and put a bug in the air ear about how things were going to go and he attempts to kill Roselle and Harry interferes and takes the blow and then Tyr Warhide kills the guy um, and it's a severe blow and it almost kills Harry uh, and I had that in because I wanted to um, explore that kind of emotional debt between Harry and Ragnarok but it would have added 35 to 40k to my story. And it was too much. So I took it out. Now when I first put it in, it wasn't it didn't feel anything big, but when I got to the point where I was getting ready to write it, I realized it was just too much. That it was too big. So I removed it while I was writing all the world on Rough Trade. And I had to repot a little as a result. Yes, he was the um he becomes the patron. Um and yeah, yeah, he was the patron in all the world. Um, so yeah, it was a big deal. So yeah, it would have been a huge boulder in my plot. And I would still honestly like to write something like that. I just don't know what I would like to write, but um, it it no longer fit for all the world. It was it was a distraction, and it would have really caused a a fork in the road kind of situation in my plot. I would have had to take it one way or the other based on you know what I had going on. So it just didn't seem like the it was not the right place for it. And having that kind of mercenary uh discussion with yourself is really important. Yeah. It it you do have to sometimes be really hard hard with yourself and take out things that you really enjoy in a story and go, eh, this doesn't work. Um and and that's that's part of this whole pro that's that's why we're having this podcast is because um, and what and it, it sometimes you do it you take it out um and after the fact you put it in and then you take it out um sometimes you write it knowing you're going to take it out because it doesn't serve the overall flow of the story and sometimes you just go nope this is this just doesn't fit for this story arc even though i really love this idea it just makes maybe it makes the world building too big um, because sometimes in a world like Harry Potter, sometimes just putting in a concept can make the world building enormous. 
Yeah. And once you once you've done that, um, you, you you can't walk it back. Yeah, we're, big world building in Harry Potter is actually one of the biggest causes I think of expanded word count. So you have to be really careful about doing things that really alter the world building significantly. I mean, like give you big big add on world building, um, like doing really complicated things with family magic, um, give you a lot of words. So you have to be careful about how much of that you're going to incorporate. I would want to write it with an underage Harry. So I wouldn't do warm ages um, because Harry's, well, he's an adult in a 16, 17 year old body. He's still an adult. Um, and he, with a warrior culture, you need to be careful. I think that Harry in all the world could have done it, um, could have interfered in that fight and taken the blow for Rizelle, and Rizelle would not have resented him for it. Um, but an adult wizard getting between two Diverger in that circumstance, I think Rizelle would be deeply insulted. It has to be the act of basically a child. Yeah. Where his motivations aren't in question at all. Now, Harry wasn't basically a child in all the world, but his motivations would have been perfectly clear. It wouldn't have been political. It wouldn't have been to gain favor. It would have just been because he just couldn't stand not to help. And those motivations are very important when you're building plot elements like that. Is like, how does... Right, in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, um, Hermione acts to protect the chieftain who has disarmed himself to participate in this um, patronage ceremony. He's unarmed and he's not wearing armor either. He's standing there in a, in a in a ritual robe and someone's coming at him with magic and a sword. So she does what she does because it's the it's about the House of Potter defending um and the patronage. And she does it out of instinct. She doesn't do it for any other reason than that. She's not trying to gain favor or to make him in her debt. Uh it doesn't even occur to her. So he accepts it for what it was. It was a really selfless act on her part. And so that's when you're, when you're building those kind of elements, you need to pay attention to the characterization and how your character's behavior will be perceived by others in a realistic fashion. Does that make sense? <coughs> yeah, it, it does make perfect sense because I think with the diverger motive means everything. Um, but also, as you said, um, Power means a lot. Even if Harry, an adult Harry, a powerful adult wizard Harry, had good motives, it wouldn't matter. Also, I think the age of the other character is 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 also in play. Like there are two very small children. Um, Harry has godchildren in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, and they're Rizelle's children. Um, and if he came into the defense of them, no one would blink an eye. I mean, these are basically five or six year old kids. Um, it would not occur to anybody to be upset about that because they're children and they're his godchildren. But even if they weren't his godchildren and say there was a diverger child that got lost and ended up in the front of the bank somehow. And Harry prevents them from getting hurt either as an adult or a child. No diverger is going to look at him and think um, you asshole <laughs> because it's a child, right? Even if he um. um broke some rule about magic using magic in the bank or something right if it was in the if it was in defense of one of their children they would find a way to 
to overlook it or forgive it because he's so you know motivations are really important knowing your character's gmc is paramount when you're designing um plot points because their motivations and their intent carry your plot and they also determine how others react around them um this is his intent going into this event but how was that intent perceived <coughs> and what do you do with it now there is a child in small magic a diverger child that apparates she's especially fond of thorin um and so she'll go find him she's a toddler and um they can't really contain her um without warding her and uh so every once in a while she'll she'll slip loose and go find thorin or apparate to thorin um because she he the king's her favorite and he finds her very amusing because of course you know i'm the king <laughs> i should be everybody's favorite <laughs> and but what if one of the diverger child, child um, ch children on earth did that what if one of them apparated into a park near harry's house by accident on privet drive that's an interesting idea because depending upon Harry's age, um... what if it happened after his first year? So he knew this child was magical, couldn't be certain, honestly, at that age if it was human or diverger. If you go with the dwarf species that I use in my Harry Potter, um, because they're just basically smaller humans, because so I based them on Lord of the Rings dwarves. Um, so proportionally, this child would just look like a very small child. It wouldn't look. So what's he do? You know, he's if he's depending on how old he is. Like if he's already used the night bus. What if it happened after fourth year? He uses the night bus in third year by accident, right? Second year, second year, second year. Uh, between second and third year, right? Yeah, because he does it when he see he sees serious. So right. what if after his third year he goes home? He goes to the park and he sees a child apparate into the park. And he's, he goes he and picks this. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I can. He, he gets summons the night bus because he knows it's a way of magical transport that he can rely on. Even though he takes gonna... his kid, gets on the bus. Meanwhile, I imagine the parents of this child, let's say it's Roselle's child, Roselle and Tears' child, um, they're frantically looking for their child. And their child shows up in the bank lobby with Harry Potter because he found the, the kid in the park because the kid wanted to play. Because, <laughs> yeah, the kid wanted to play. So it operated, she operated, she, I think she would be cute, she operated to um, a park to play. <coughs> what if she was met? What if she wanted to operate to somewhere to play and she operated to a park? With an intense source of magic, and Harry is like the strongest magical beacon outside of um, Diagon Alley. Yeah, or maybe the maybe it could even be the wards in that area. But that's how she wound up so close to him. And he's just like, "Oh, holy crap, little child! Um, <laughs> I must take you back." But you could actually use that as a setup for averting the whole Goblet of Fire shenanigans, right? And that's how Harry gets a solicitor, <laughs> right? A Harry very writes, grateful solicitor. He writes, he write, he can write Rizelle and say, do I really have Pete in the Goblet of Fire? I didn't put my name in. Rizelle writes him back, do not do anything. <laughs> Tears on his way. <coughs> yeah, Harry does accidentally apparate as a child. Um, but, <coughs> so, you know. See, it's, it's my headcanon about the Goblet of Fire thing that the people who put their name in want to compete. But that actually what is binding is 
what binds you to the tournament is um, pretend the first task. And that Harry wasn't bound to that tournament until he participated in that first task. If I found that out as an adult, I would sue fucking everybody who was still um, still, uh, still alive. Everybody would get sued. I'm suing everybody. It could be wand weighing too, yeah. But there's some event that binds you to the task. Otherwise, they could have had this problem thousands of times, people putting other people's names in who didn't want to compete. So if you didn't want to compete, you just didn't do whatever that initial thing was. Right, because the only the thing on it is the age line. Right. Which I mean, means any been... seventh year could put like all the first year's names in. Right. Just nobody happened to do it. So apparently the goblet has some sort of sentience about it. Otherwise, it, cause it only picks people who want to compete. Harry didn't want to compete, but apparently he was the only entry for like, I guess, a fourth school, something like that. Whatever. I mean, the whole thing is bizarre. But, you know, I think that there's something that binds you to the tournament other than your name being spit out of the cup yeah, there has to be it's like acceptance you have that you're that you're accepting that you're participating right and tear and Rizal could know immediately what that what that acceptance is they could tell them do not do anything you can do nothing do not do a wand wing don't do anything they tell you to do and whatever that event is that you are um now i had this one kind of cracky fic that i was working on it never got very far with it but it was a um spin on this idea but it was that um anybody could enter a proxy for themselves and the proxy was you nobody was committed until the first task and that Barty had actually entered himself with his own magical signature with harry as his proxy and harry figures this out that it's only the person who's mag the magical signature put the thing in um could is the person bound to the tournament and that harry was entered as a proxy for the person who put their and harry all harry had to do was just not compete but so it was Barty's magic that was at risk, not Harry's. So Harry just refuses to participate in the first task, and Barty loses his shit. <laughs> He's like, "You have to compete!" And everybody's looking like, "What is the matter with you? He has to compete! I'll lose my magic!" <laughs> He's like, uh, "Okay, well now we understand what's going on." You break the trap there. Here's your dragon. <laughs> and then Dumbledore tries to convince Harry, "Well, you, you can't let him." He's like, "Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you in your eye!" <laughs> Albus, Brian, Thomas, James, O'Brien. You, you compete as his proxy then. How about that? Percival Dumbledore. So, anyway, um, but I like the idea of uh, Harry getting to avert that. Like, Tyr shows up with, you know, um, his axe and a, and, a, and, a, and a quill and saying, "My why is my client being compelled to participate in this barbaric <laughs> human ritual? <laughs> this barbaric human ritual. The things you do to your children. Um, Albus, Wolfric, Percival, Brian, Dumbledore. It's my headcanon that he actually only has one name. Well, well, two names. Albus Dumbledore. And he put all those other ones in himself. Yeah. But someone asked why the Triwizard Cup lets more than three through, though. Because it, it, what makes sense is that it's always called the Triwizard because it's only three, but that there's no reason it couldn't have been the Quad Wizard the quint wizard or you know it can't be the sextuplet wizard because that'd be just too porny for <laughs> high schoolers i'm pretty sure um, that's a porn title right there um they probably call it try because it's three schools but you know there's no reason it, um there's no reason that it couldn't have been more so the fact that the, the fact that it split four names out for three schools um and the fourth school was just mysteriously added should have been enough to cancel the whole damn thing but they're not reasonable 
So it's, you know, impossible for us to expect that. So did anybody have any questions about the stuff we've been kind of talking about, about evaluating ideas and, um, I don't know, moving, f how, how to figure out if you're derailing your plot, how to get to the end, particularly the person who asked the question, did this help you? Did this help harm you? <laughs> Were you harmed in the making of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It is hard because uh, it is hard to be ruthless with yourself because when everything is pretty and shiny and your creative brain is latched on to something and you go, oh, I really want to write that. Um, and sometimes you just got to spin off another story, you know, which, which is, I've done that where I go, okay, I really like this idea, but it would be a real derailment of this story. So I'm just going to go write another story. Um, so, oh, you do, you do. It's just practice and also making yourself a folder of good ideas to use for later is really beneficial. I think just getting it out of your brain onto paper and into a folder that you can set aside for later will make it easier for you to let go of things that don't really work. So you won't have to be ruthless. You can be gentle with yourself by putting these ideas here for later. Like you're so giving you yourself say, a treat for later. Yeah. You could even give it a grandiose title like um, great ideas whose whose idea great great ideas whose time has not yet come. Um, <laughs> I love it. When you say you tried to bullet point plot but derailed horribly, can you, can you expand on that a little bit about wh what happened? It isn't actually all that easy to let it go when an idea really captures your brain. Sometimes you stop the story you're working on. So let's say an idea really captures you, um, and this has happened to me, where you're working on one story and you get this idea that doesn't fit that story, but it won't let you go. And you set the story you're working on aside to work on the other idea because it just really gets you. I wouldn't know. I mean, I only derailed my entire Rough Trade July so I could write two Mandalorian stories. I remember. <laughs> it happens, you know, and sometimes creativity is what it is. So I've been intermittently muting myself here while I pop pills. So that's why if, if my sound's coming in and out, it's because y'all didn't need to hear me chugging water um yeah sometimes you put a little bit too much even plotters put a little bit too much something somebody mentioned in the chat they put too much into their plot um and they realize that they're not getting to the the meat of their story in a timely fashion and they go okay i gotta i gotta i gotta strip this down a little bit and that happens sometimes kira plotted would you say 10 15k of curtain fic before the beginning of your story which we yeah, know why but it was going to take you a while to get to this actual start of your story. So you kind of had to chop that up a little bit. <clears throat> because the soul magic ended in such a tragic, harsh way that when I started plotting zero drafting for only time, it was like immediately after that. I zero drafted over a period of a week, the whole thing. Um, and so I had no break emotionally between the two and so i was like okay they're gonna get this and they're gonna have a picnic I'm like no baby <laughs> yeah picnic later <laughs> it was ridiculous <laughs> okay so uh somebody says i hit all the word counts for the first one and a half weeks followed bullet points for about two days and then started to add paragraphs of shiny new world building by the time I hit 15K, there's a team of OC, a whole event that didn't exist in the plot, and a chapter worth of conversation and discussion with other characters about what happened, etc. But the question is, is, did any of that help you? 
Was it helping you get where you wanted to go? Was it frustrating because it wasn't helping you getting where you wanted to go? Did it feel like you were just adding indiscriminately? I mean, you said you're a pantser, so this is sometimes part of the pantser process. So I'm not discounting that this might have been actually productive for you. Um, so you're a pantser, but you bulleted. You did a bullet plot. Well, sometimes what happens with pantsers try to plot as they wind up feeling stifled. And then they kind of go off the rails. Okay. So adding future plot points which started to create contradictions and needed more preface content. Okay. I think it's a mistake to force yourself into somebody else's box. Um, if plotting creatively doesn't work for you, you need to figure out what does work for you. So you know already that you're likely to go off the rails even if you plot. And that you know that if you don't plot, you're going to get stuck in the middle. So have you considered a technique where you focus on, instead of plot events, thematic elements? Um, I do this thing called cloud plotting sometimes before I ever start actually doing my zero draft, where I connect my characters and ideas and themes into these little bubbles. Um, so that I have a basic idea of of who's involved, what's involved, and why they're involved. And I'll often build a character list from this cloud plot. I'll add to it later or not, depending on how I take somebody off. I'm just like cross you off. I don't need you. Check, check, check. Um, but and then picking out instead of like doing a whole big giant list of events, make a, an event for each arc. Say you're going to do a three arc story. So your act one is your inciting event. Write down your inciting event. And two, act two is the body of your story. What's happening there? Give yourself a single sentence of what's happening in act two. And then in act three, that's where you're going to have your you're going to have your climax at the end of act two is the beginning of act three. And then you're going to have your um, falling action, right? So you need to pick your resolution for act three. Um, write down these three points and see how that treats you. Because maybe you just need a structure and not a roadmap. I need a roadmap and reservations. <laughs> It's just that's just how I work, but it doesn't have nobody's process is your process. So you need to figure out what kind of process works for you and kind of merge them together and take plot, take elements from different people's processes to see and and make your own. Give yourself a character list, and before you add an OC to that character list, ask: Is there anybody in canon who can do this? And if they can, then you don't need an OC. So it comes about asking yourself questions. Do it in a natural way, though, because sometimes people use canon characters in a very unnatural way, trying not to create an OC. Mm -hmm. It's like sometimes you just need an OC. Like, um, like trying to give Buck a parental figure and like they'll wedge Bobby into that role in a really unnatural way. It's like it, and they have Bobby functioning in Buck's life years before Buck would have known him. And it's like they don't even bother to address that the inconsistency it would have created in ripple events you know, that, that them know each other for years. It's just, it's weird. Um, so one of the things, when we did the, it did, and this is the podcast series stuff about plotting a novella thing. Mm -hmm. We do talk about, we do talk quite a bit, if I recall, in that series about how to approach certain elements we talk about if you're a pantser. Um, it is a lot focused more on plotting, but we do talk about how to approach things for pantsers. At least I think that's the series we talk about that. We do the comparison. I, I think so. Um it's been a while. I've slept since then. 
but bullet points, um, bullet plotting is sort of, a, I think, an intro plotting. A lot of people try that doesn't necessarily work for people. Um, I don't enjoy bullet plotting. I mean, it can. I mean, I've certainly done it. It can work, but um, yeah. And, honestly, when I'm, when I'm doing something, when I'm doing something shorter, I'll give a list point. Just this is, this is what I'm. This is what I'm trying to get accomplished and move on with my life. Um, I'm more likely to do a narrative style plot if I'm doing something quick, like you know, expl- give like a. It's almost like a. It's almost like a abstract about what I'm planning to do as opposed to bullet points because it helps me to get out in more of a narrative form because it's kind of the more the way I think. Um, but if you've got your thematic elements and you understand the point of your story, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to plotters who think they know where their story is going, where I ask, okay, I understand what you say you're trying to do, but what is the point? What is, what are you trying to accomplish? Figure out the language that makes you, that makes sense to you. What is the focus? Whether it's the focus or the point or the hook, what is it that you are trying to accomplish with the story? Is it to give Harry a better setup for his life? Is it to give him a stronger family relationship? What is the ultimate end game? What is the point? What is the what is the the, the thing that you are doing with this? And then even a pantser should be able to answer some basic questions about their story. And then when you're making decisions about what goes in your story, you need to, you should be able to tell, is this, will this get me to that place without creating so many ripples that I can't manage it? And it is hard because you can, especially if you really are enamored with a fandom, it can be really hard not to get distracted by the thing, all the things you want to fix. And I could fix all these things, but you know, you, you don't have 600K. Um, and one style of plotting that might help, depending on the type of thinker you are, is um, critical dependency plotting, which is, this is bare bones. In order to get from where I start to where I need to be, what events have to occur in order? And only the critical events. So these are the events that are sequential. And they're, they're critical dependencies, the critical path in your story, okay? And then once you figure out the critical path, Everything else it builds off of that in like little shoots. Have you ever seen a project management chart? They're like little, they're like little side tracks on a railroad. You know, all this other stuff. But figuring out your critical dependency plotting is a different method. And but again, it only works for certain kinds of thinkers. Some people just don't think that way. Like cloud plotting is for a different kind of thinker than who does critical dependency plotting. Mm-hmm. I find the idea of critical dependence plotting kind of um clinical it is clinical um but it depends upon what it's it also can strip you strip you strip you down to the not you not you personally but strip your plot I down know, Julie. to the absolute minimum these are the things that absolutely have to occur in the order they have to occur and if these things don't occur in order i can't get from point a to point z for instance um, if harry potter doesn't get his letter he doesn't go to hogwarts but if he doesn't get his letter he doesn't know to get supplies to go to school so he gets his letter he goes to get his supplies he gets on the train he gets sorted at hogwarts those are the critical that's the critical path and you can build a critical path to anything right and the thing is you should and you may have to break it down in smaller pieces like maybe maybe the big critical path is too difficult but sit down with somebody and figure out the small critical path and from the small critical path you can build the big critical path and the, that critical path is not necessarily your plot. 
but it exposes your plot because your plot events have to occur along the critical path. They just do. But again, it is a clinical way of looking at plot that sometimes for people who are very creative pantsers, it helps them because it allows them to have this clinical thing they've done and then they can go off and be creative with how they fill in the blanks. Corsa, I would say your critical path in Mass Effect is the mission list, which you can pull off any Wikipedia, you know, you know any wiki. There's a whole Mass Effect wiki for that. Um, some missions are mission essential and some are not. So like you know the critical path in Mass Effect. You know how to get there. You need to get to the end. Um, so because you're a gamer, the critical path might actually work really well for you. Because these are the events that you have to do to get to the end of the game. These are the events that you can skip. So a critical path can expose your plot, even if it doesn't necessarily constrain your plot. So it's not great for constrainment because you can go off on as many side tangents as you want, but it exposes what you necessarily have to do. Like, I have to do all of these things in this order or I don't reach the end. And for and, it, and because it allows for create more sometimes more creative more, more creativity than actual plotting, people can kind of fill in how they get along the between the points in the critical path, however they want. It sometimes works for some types of pantsers, but not all of them because it can feel too constraining, or some people just can't see the critical path. Not everybody can break down their story <coughs> in their fashion because they just can't see that far ahead. <coughs> It's all everybody. So that's why it's important to try new things and recognize that everybody is a different type of thinker. Everybody's brains work a little bit differently. Um, even though I prefer a more narrative style to my plotting now at this stage in my life, um, because I was a you know I spent a huge portion of my adult life as a project manager. I'm really used to working on a critical path, so it's very easy for me to think that way. And you can also reverse engineer a critical path. This is where I want to be. How do I back that up? The problem is when you reverse engineer a critical path, you have to forward check it to make sure you don't didn't do something unnatural, which people do all the time. Like, oh, if I want this to happen, I need to have had him do this. But then you're like, but if he does this, why would he have not done the more obvious thing and gone there? You know what I mean? Which can get a little frustrating. So revert, you can't... You Right. So what happens when you reverse engineer a path is sometimes you'll have had a drastic oversight because your character would have had, a, if you going forward, when you follow that path going forwards, your character would have done something that would have made more sense if they had gone left instead of right. But because you reverse engineered it, that, that, this, that flaw in the decision wasn't exposed. So you got to cross check when you reverse engineer. Does that answer um, the question? Do you feel a little better about it. Okay. I think that no matter how you approach your process or your craft, that you have to be honest about um, how you need to be honest with yourself about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and trying to shove yourself into somebody else's box is never going to be the thing that works for you. Because I mean, I, when I was younger, I went through so many different kinds of processes and so many different kinds of plotting um, and so many different, I mean, just, just trying to find something that worked for me. And I ended up pulling all these little elements from different places until I found one that, you know, I, until I found my own spot in the craft. Um, and that's what you have to do as a writer. Um, and that's why it's important to continue to grow and change and, and write as much as possible because you learn so much about yourself in doing. 
but you can't learn any other way. You'll learn your limitations. You'll learn when to push. You'll learn, you'll learn some of your failures as you do as your successes. Sometimes more. And that's the important part. Julie, do you have anything else? I don't really. I know this is hard. I know this is not. It's easier when there are craft topics where there's an easy answer or a straightforward answer. Then, um, then you have to evaluate it. You have to be hard with yourself or, you know, or when there's not a, just a straightforward, this is, this is, this is going to help you. This is not going to help you. But what sometimes the elements to include in your story, whether you plot or pants and whether you're doing this in the plotting stage or in the writing stage, these are always some of the hardest things to do because the more creative you are, the more ideas are going to come to you. And sometimes as you're writing, it's more and more and more ideas and idea management, managing those ideas is honestly, I think one of the hardest tasks that you have to figure out how to get a handle on as a writer, because you, I don't think you'll, if you don't get past how to, how to say no to yourself, you will stall out. Or you'll just have this interminable whip that never ends. Sometimes it's better to have 100 works in progress than one work in progress that's 500k. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if anybody ever plots with me, I will definitely ask. I'm definitely a, a poker. I'm on like, but, but why? But why? <laughs> but why? I'm not a good person to plot with if somebody just wants me to tell them, you know, yes, you should do that and add more and add more and add more. I want I want you to tell me why this should be there. Why should that be in there? Because most of the time it probably shouldn't. If you don't have an immediate answer, sometimes in fandom we um we I do it too um will have little elements of fan service in our stories, um, ego service, id service, so to speak, um, and it can be difficult. To stop doing that. And that's how you get a whole bunch of things. In your story that don't. Really belong there. Sometimes it's cracks. Sometimes it's amusement. Um, is it necessary? No. Should it be there? Probably not. No. Avery served a very good purpose. Um, Avery provided. Um, humor and emotional elements. To the story. That were deeply lacking. In my zero draft. Um, I did pants him. So, but I wouldn't have left him in, in my second draft if he didn't serve a purpose. And I certainly wouldn't have gone back and developed him earlier on if he didn't serve a purpose. Because, um, I'm trying to think about something that I put in a story that served absolutely. Okay. There's a scene in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond where Harry talks Dumbledore into being his passenger. And you see Dumbledore flying around Hogwarts on a dragon. Shouting woohoo. And Minerva sees this, those open the door and basically ground window and grounds them both, basically, gives them both detention. Um, and takes points from Harry Potter for being a fucking Gryffindor. Um, and it literally served no purpose. He was being a fucking Gryffindor, but they both were. <laughs> they were both being fucking Gryffindors. <laughs> but it literally served no purpose, but it amused me. So that that, that was there. But it served no plot purpose. It didn't even serve any characterization because they'd, they'd already finished that characterization scene. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was humor for my reader, not for any other reason. It was humor for the sake of it. Um, whereas Avery serves a very specific purpose in um, Finding Atlantis. Um, he really is an emotional support animal. 
It does lighten up the heavy conversation, but it wasn't necessary for the plot. So it was humor for my reader that served literally no plot purpose. And if I hadn't included it, no one would miss it because they would never know it was there. Yeah. And sometimes you put stuff in for because you want to. Um, and as long as it doesn't, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's often, often these things are small, funny, or heartwarming, or, um, I mean, there was a little tiny thing at the end of uh, one of the chapters of uh, Fearless, the whole thing about them making lasagna and Christopher liking word shenanigans, that didn't need to be in there. But it was adorable. Oh, my God. It was just a little Bubbles thing. in my mouth. Yeah, it was, it was a little <laughs> thing, and I wanted... I wanted a moment. It didn't have to be that moment, but I wanted a moment that was lighter after Eddie's intense therapy scene. Um, now, the little moment of humor doesn't derail the story because if it had derailed, I would not have left it in. So, do um, like little fun fan service moments that don't have to be derailment. Yeah, yes, it can be derailing if they get too big. Um, if they right, if he had crashed into one of the towers and killed Dumbledore, that might have been a problem. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Depending on the story. <laughs> but um it just, you know, those little moments can be entertaining, but they aren't necessary for your story. Uh but this is the kind of the, we all do this. It's when those little moments get completely out of hand that it becomes a problem. So if you don't have any discipline when it comes to those little moments, then you can't have them. Because I mean, sometimes I have to take shit out because I can't I, I I can't be trusted. <laughs> and if that hadn't been the last, the, the single last scene of that, of that particular episode, I would not have been trusted with the rest of that episode. It could not have taken place in the middle of that story because everybody and their brother at Hogwarts would have been getting around a dragon. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's about all I got. I mean, this is this is just I know this is such a hard topic. Um, it is hard not to go down every creative rabbit hole, every little thing. And the thing is, you see it like in in conversations with people. People just have ideas after ideas after ideas after ideas. And sometimes you'll be in a group and I'm like, oh, all of those are such great ideas, but they just don't all fit in the same story. We had this tonight, you know. There were so many, sometimes so many good ideas in the chat room, and we discussed just a tiny fraction of what was in the chat room tonight. That there were just so many good ideas, but they didn't all fit in the same story. They could have individually, every one of them could have individually been a good story, but they didn't all fit together. And it can be hard to go, okay, I, I love that, but it doesn't work for this. And if it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. It, it just doesn't work for the... And sometimes you'll even get people get really pushy with you and try to really drive their agenda. This will fit in your story. It will, it will, it will. When somebody's pushing that with you, back away. Get Run far away because nobody should be pushing their agenda for your story. That's just dangerous. And I've seen that in like some writers groups sometimes where people will be like talking and somebody will be like, no, I don't think that really works. And somebody will just keep trying to like hammer home. Oh yeah, you should definitely do this. You should definitely do this. I saw a discussion where, where somebody, somebody wanted to write an AU and I think they were kind of like gearing towards this sort of a soft, gentle kind of um, 911 AU. And somebody was really trying to get them to write a mob AU. And they were just really would not let it go. Just would not <laughs> let like it go. 
this whole mob AU kind of idea. And they go, no, I don't really want to deal with the whole criminal thing. Oh, you don't have to focus on the criminal thing, but it would be really cool if Eddie was like, you know, if he was like carrying guns all the time. It was like, oh, so just keep playing up the violent elements when they keep telling you they don't really want to get into that thing. But, you know. Why would Eddie be in the mob? Oh, total fucking mob boss in this discussion. And Buck's like his kept man, you know. I mean, but why the mob? I don't know. Is mob it, you, isn't the mob Italian? I mean, well, they're, I mean, I, I do, I don't know. I mean, yes, but I mean, I, or, or I'm getting derailed. Crime. I'm yes. getting derailed. I mean, it's like, that's like Eddie runs a triad. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it be a cartel? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, somebody pointed out. Well, so are you saying he's a drug dealer? No, you don't have to go down the cliched path of him being a drug dealer. Well, what, 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 what non-cliched mob path do you want us to go down? I mean, you, you. Well, obviously, we don't want him to run guns. <laughs> <coughs> there actually are several nine one one stories that feature that are mob AUs. I, it's not my mob AUs aren't my thing because I'm usually not interested in reading my characters as died died in the wool my beloved characters is died in the wool hard and criminals that kill people. But um, I go to Hannibal for that. <laughs> I just, I don't see how you get um, army veteran and silver star s- recipient to mob boss. How do you get there? I, I don't know. But is it, my point is that, is that there, there's discussion. This person wanted to write this, come up with ideas for an AU they could write. And I mean, I think that based on what they're saying, they probably were kind of somebody who leans more towards an academia AU and this person is just like hammering this mob AU idea at them and it didn't matter how many how much they demurred that they didn't want to go that route it's just the person wouldn't quit and when you get somebody who is pushing their agenda on your story and giving you ideas that just don't work for you just back away that's the number one reason why I'm not on any of those servers because I've already been thrown off number one but um number two I, I would be like derailing this person on the mob front I'm like, oh wait, Eddie could be a mermaid, right? Eddie could be a mermaid. I'm, I'm down with that. That actually makes a lot more sense because that's something he could be doing sneakily. <laughs> that he can't exactly be a mob boss on the sly. Actually, there was one suggestion that he could be like in the mob on the sly. That was a suggestion. He could be like in, in, a, in a part of a criminal underbelly kind of thing. I was like, <sighs> no, he's a mermaid. Like, I don't think a mermaid would be a mob boss. <laughs> no. But, <coughs> yeah, Jesus, that's hot. <laughs> that man has a business looking like it. <laughs> he could totally be a mermaid. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. But no, I mean, people will be people will derail you for the purpose of serving themselves because they're selfish and greedy and you just got to be prepared to say no and walk away no is a complete sentence and you don't owe them any explanations you don't owe them a damn thing honestly so the least of all is an explanation as to why you don't want their shitty mob idea (laughs) right because just it's it, it should always be sufficient in any given in any given discussion that's not my thing i'm not into it um no should be enough yeah and when it's not enough avoid that person and uh, like go to your list on discord and like ignore them or ban them or whatever you got whatever that is i haven't done it yet on discord block i think block okay 
means you don't see them anymore. <coughs> but block their ass. Yeah. Because you don't need, when you're trying to sort out your own creative ideas, you don't need somebody else's ideas cluttering up your headspace. And then especially if it's somebody, if that voice is there, you go, well, oh, well, maybe that could make somebody in here a mob boss. It's like, why does a mob boss fit in this at all? You know, Harry Potter's going off to the International Academy of Magic and there's a mob boss in there for some fucking reason. <laughs> Sometimes it's okay to just say no to an idea. Just go, I'm sorry, idea. I mean, you're pretty and all, but we're going to just put you and your gun over here in a in a side folder and deal with you some other time. Gun? I just... Is it about those pictures where you break out like a criminal? Probably. Okay. Probably. I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, he's done a lot of modeling work apparently, so... But on the other hand, there's that picture of him naked with a woman using his ass as an ashtray. I don't see a lot of, you know, um, furniture AUs. <laughs> <laughs> furniture AUs. I mean, seriously, she's got an ashtray propped on his bare butt. I mean, I haven't seen any AUs come up out of that. I haven't seen one. What, what do you call that when you eat off somebody's body? What's that called? Unhygienic? <laughs> no, there's a, like there's a fetish where you, where you there, put there food is like a using human platter. There is there is a fetish. I just can't think of what the name is, but all I can think of the time. Is no, baby, unhygienic. not body shots. There's actually a fetish where you put you use a person's body as a plate or a tray to set up food. Um, because I've never seen any fic where Buck does that, and no, yeah, it is done for sushi. Uh, where Buck just sets Eddie up as a buffet. <laughs> It's called sploshing. <laughs> sploshing? Okay. <coughs> I knew it was called something. Um, or or the, there actually is. Or if you actually are aroused by the food itself, it's called cetophilia. As opposed to, you know. Not that 911 needs any other kinks to add to their... <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, okay. Ever how you say that? Body sushi. It's the Japanese practice of serving sushi or sashimi on the naked body of a woman. And there is a term there is a term for it, but I would not want to try to mutilate that to say it. Julie, you want to give it a shot? Um, uh, Naya Taimori? Okay. Um, is it always a woman? I've always seen it as a woman, yes. I would say that it's probably, um, well, let's just be honest. I mean, there's a lot of female fetishism in in that in, in okay so neo not says it's neo time worry <coughs> wow but yeah it's you know um anyway just so that people push their agenda on you regardless of what it's just like we don't you know i think plotting is a useful tool and i think there's a lot of different ways to plot that could be helpful even the very minimalist know where you're going kind of plot can be helpful for writers but i'm not here to push any particular agenda and if anybody tells you there's a particular way you have to plot you need to stop listening to them because people need to not push their agenda whether it's on because it's just it's none of their it's none of their business what and, you write and even when you're asking for help you can still decline the help that you're offered yeah sometimes people get stuck they feel like well i asked for this help i'm gonna have to take their suggestion no you don't just like you don't have to take any of the advice we offer tonight. If it doesn't work for you, ultimately, if you need to include all the things, I mean, you're going to you're gonna be back in that syndrome of your fic that never ends, potentially. But if that ultimately is what you have to do, then that's what you got to do. I don't recommend it. But <laughs> I don't either. But in the end, it's fan fiction. 
and you should do um, uh, what makes you happy when you're writing fan fiction. Not what anybody else expects or wants. That's a hard place to get to, especially in fandom when you're bombarded with um, people telling you what they want and how they want it. And you're, oh, you're doing this wrong or you're doing this wrong. And I can't believe you didn't do this. And why the hell are there dragons in this story? <laughs> right. I'm never getting over that. I'm, I'm, I'm never getting over because that. Because it's the main focal point. What are you doing to me? It's like, it's the structure. Without the dragons, I have a sentinel story. Are you going to ask me why there's sentinels in it? <laughs> I think she might have, yeah. <coughs> it's, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's important to be just really honest with yourself about your craft and what you want to get out of it and what you want to get out of your writing experience and um, what you want your reader to get out of your words. Whether they get it or not is up for debate. Because y'all, I telegraphed the fuck out of Dumbledore showing up at the end of that chapter and everybody's like, oh, wow, Dumbledore really surprised me. Really? Really? Okay. <laughs> Whatever me and my subtle foreshadowing. <laughs> I took Harry to a freaking market in Hogsmeade. <laughs> then had him cause a scene. I'm oh, sure. Dumbledore is such a surprise. <laughs> yeah, Whatever. I'm shocked. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know what you mean by that, Sina. What son of a bitch in emotional clockwork. Anyways, I think that's going to be it for the podcast. Um, I hope that you guys learned something and uh, that you're uh, being, that you, that you continue to strive to be honest in your craft and honest with yourself and that you learn and grow and change as a writer every single day. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.